Binge Mode is presented by Bud Light. Bud Light is all about bringing friends together. And we're wondering which unlikely pairs will team up this season. Seeing so many old friends and new come together. For instance, this past episode, we saw two brothers get back together. Sir Gregor, the Mountain, and the Hound. Reunited again after all these years, the final embrace in the tower. It was beautiful. Bud Light is reminding you to enjoy responsibly. 21 and up. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by the all-new BMW 3 Series. Don't be driven by technology. Never. Drive it. The all-new BMW 3 Series is available with the latest BMW innovations. But what you'll love about this vehicle can't be listed or explained in words. It has to be felt on the road. Kind of like how Arya felt at the end of the episode when she mounted that pale mare. Hmm. So hurry into your local BMW Center today and test drive the all-new BMW 3 Series for yourself. The all-new BMW 3 Series. Don't be driven by technology. Drive it. BMW, the ultimate driving machine. Come in. Binge mode contains adult content. We'll try again next recording. I think they're watching me. Who? The producers. Of course they are. That's their job. What have I told you, Mallory? That binge mode also contains spoilers. Go on. They'll be missing you in the kitchen. And now binge mode. What did I say would happen if you told your sister? I don't want it, and that's what I told him. She betrayed your trust. She killed Varys as much as I did. This is a victory for her. Now she knows what happens when people hear the truth about you. Far more people in Westeros love you than love me. I don't have love here. I only have fear. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Yes. Proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. One of the greater websites, if not the greatest. Joining me today, now that he's finished tiptoeing past the mountain, the hound, and Guybrun's corpse. Excuse me, excuse me, fellas. I gotta use the, uh, I gotta use the bathroom. <laughs> it's a ringer senior creative. Your maester, Jason Concepcion. Well, he was not even a maester. People forget this about him. He was, <laughs> he was de-chained, but he was an essential part of Binge Mode Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. We hope that, like Kyburn, you subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get them. And please rate and review us. Seven pointed star for reading, five stars for binge mode reviews. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to commiserate with people who named a loved one Khaleesi or got that Khaleesi tattoo of their dreams. And please... Head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our brand new binge mode merch. Not fire retardant, but also very fashionable. And 
go ahead and join us at the third annual Con of Thrones, which yeah. is coming to Nashville, Tennessee, this summer, July 12th to 14th. Celebrity guests include Nikolai Costa-Waldo, a.k.a. Jamie the Dirtbag Lannister, John Bradley, a.k.a. Samuel Tarley, and Hannah Murray, a.k.a. Gilly with more coming soon. Full weekend day passes and special Valerian passes are available now at conathrones.net, so get your passes now and come race to the dinghy with us. Love a dinghy. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored how choice shaped the last of the Starks, the fourth episode of season eight of Game of Thrones. And today, we're diving deep. Deep. Into episode five. After you listen to this, be sure to check out all of the other Thrones offerings on various Ringer platforms, including mm. Talk the Thrones with yes. us and Chris Ryan, Live on Twitter right after the East Coast airing of Game of Thrones ends on Sunday nights. And next week, we will also have a Thursday series wrap show for you. As always, speculation and spoiler warning for today's pod. We will be going deep. Deep. On details from the show and the books alike from this episode and this season and all that came before it. So mount your ashen horse. Because it's time to break down Season 8, Episode 5, The Bells. Mal, yeah. Cersei once called me the stupidest podcaster, so let's smarten up <laughs> by offering up a brief refresher on what actually happened in the Bells by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. After Masandi's death in the prior episode, Danny has walled herself off at Dragonstone. She's not seeing her advisor. She isn't eating. Her face has grown gaunt. Her hair has grown unkempt. Also on the island, Varys is obviously trying to poison Danny and yeah. is also writing letters to other Westerosi leaders revealing the truth of John's parentage. John arrives on Dragonstone and Varys confronts him, trying to get him to press his claim for the throne. John resists, reaffirming again that Danny is his queen, despite the spider's warnings about the Targaryen tendency towards madness. Tyrion goes to Danny, tells her about Varys' scheme. She has Grey Worm arrest the Master of Whisperers from his chamber and sentences him to die. She intones Dracarys, and Drogon crisps the spider. Bells for Varys. Give us whispers for Varys. Danny also talks with John because she's just as upset with him as she is with Varys. She warned him about what would happen if he told Sansa, and he, of course, did not listen. When she tries to kiss him, he pulls away, and she declares that she will now rule through fear rather than love. Meanwhile, Jamie has been captured by the Unsullied, trying to break through to King's Landing, but Tyrion tricks the guards outside his tent into letting him see his brother. The two share an emotional conversation in which Tyrion reflects on how Jamie was the only person ever to believe in him, and he arranges a smuggling plan with Davos, telling Jamie that if he can convince Cersei to flee, a dinghy will be waiting for them to take them safely across the narrow sea to Pentos. As battle approaches, Tyrion organizes a plan to save the million-plus residents of King's Landing. If Cersei surrendered and rang the bells, Daenerys and Jon would call off their attack and spare the city. Ah, Chekhov's bells! The next morning, both sides prepare their forces, and Cersei ushers more small folk into the Red Keep to place innocence between her and Daenerys. Just before the gates close, Arya and the Hounds sneak in, but Jaime misses out, despite waving his golden hand, and has to take the long way around to the castle. Then the last war begins. Riding Drogon with a fury, Danny enacts some new and successful battle taxes that Rhaegal unfortunately never learned. Mm. The pair destroys the Iron Fleet without any trouble from Euron Scorpions and sets off to remove the city's defenses. Bells for bigger crossbows. They were useless in the end. Speaking of useless, outside the city walls, the Golden Company forms rank 
as the combined northern and eastern forces look on. But the sellswords seem unprepared for the one thing they knew they would be facing, a dragon. <laughs> Unbelievable. The wall blasts apart behind them, Danny cleaving a hole in their defensive structure, and her assembled soldiers charge. Grey Worm cuts down Harry Strickland. Bells! Now, do we even have to do it? Should we just have an elephant roar? Elephant <laughs> Elephant <laughs> sound for Harry Strickland. <laughs> With an unopposed dragon flying overhead and seemingly unstoppable forces assaulting the city on the ground, the King's Landing townsfolk call for a ceasefire and begin ringing the bells. The Lannister soldiers lay down their arms and Danny lands Drogon on a parapet as her enemies surrender. Bells for the bells, though. <laughs> because as Danny gazes at the Red Keep, her eyes harden to steel and she takes flight on Drogon once more. Ignoring the sound of surrender, she urges her dragon onward and burns the city, innocence and all. Guess what we'll be talking about on today's podcast, folks? Grey Worm takes Danny's continued fight as a signal and slaughters a defenseless Lannister soldier who had already dropped his sword. The unsullied Dothraki and Northmen all charge, despite Jon's pleas to stop. As the city descends into chaos, Arya and the Hound reach the castle's map room, where the Hound tells Arya to soften her focus on revenge lest she end up like him. She agrees, thanks him, and leaves the castle. The Hound finds the mountain escorting Cersei and Cap'n <laughs> to Maegor's Holdfast. No safer place than Magor's Old Fest. Oh, it's pretty safe. It usually is pretty safe. <laughs> Which Kyvern thinks safer than the Red Keep. But when ordered to forget about his brother and stay by Cersei's side, the mountain disobeys. He grabs his creator by the throat, smashes his head against a wall, and then hurls him against the rocks, Tough killing stuff. him in an instant. Bells for Kyvern. He's not even a maester, but is. The greatest scientist in Westeros. Let's get the Nobel Prize for my guy, Kyburn. <gasps> and then the mountain and the hound fight, and we get the Clegane Bowl. Kyburn did his job well because the mountain cannot die. So Sandor tackles him off the side of the tower into the fiery depths below. Bells for Sandor Clegane. Yes. Chickens for the hound. May he eat every fucking chicken in heaven. The mountain's dead already, anyway. Fuck the mountain. Fuck the mountain. Honestly. Yeah. Bells for House Clegane. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jamie makes his way to a small cove area that contains a secret passageway into the Red Keep. Problem, Euron, who dove out of the way of Dragonfire, has managed to swim ashore to the exact spot where his nemesis awaits. Cersei's two lovers spar, and though Euron stabs the Kingslayer multiple times— Jamie then manages to impale Euron with a sword and leaves him to boast and die. Give me the sound of someone applying eyeliner and putting on leather pants for Euron Greyjoy. Can we get the sound of a finger in a butt? <laughs> <laughs> the sound of a finger popping out of a butt. <laughs> Jamie later finds Cersei in the map room and the two reunite as Cersei in tears says, she wants their baby to live. He leads them to the dungeon where a path to the dinghy should await, but rubble from Danny's continued flybys blocks the entrance. As the castle collapses around them, the two siblings slash lovers hold each other close. And Jamie says, nothing else matters besides them. Bells for Jamie, bells, bells for, for Jamie. Cersei. The things they did for love were often terrible, but let's hear those bells! 
Let's hear some lion roars. Let's hear some tower sex. Let's get some wine pouring into a goblet. (laughs) Outside the castle, King's Landing is burning. And John despairs as he sees his allies commit hideous crimes. He even begins fighting against his own soldiers to try to stop them from committing this carnage. Arya winds her way out from the castle and is nearly killed several times as she sees the destruction and death of the city's common folk firsthand. As the episode ends, she finds a lone white horse, approaches it, manages to mount it, and flees. Jason. Yeah! The next time you fail me will be the last time you fail me. Wow. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is horror. Daenerys Targaryen, Queen of the Ashes. We're going to spend a good chunk of today's show talking about Daenerys Targaryen. Oh, yeah. Before we get to the carnage in King's Landing, let's start on Dragonstone. Varys! Spider! (laughs) Varys! That spider! Our guy Varys opens this episode writing letters to the lords of the realm. Yeah. Revealing the truth of Jon's parentage. When... Varys told Tyrion last episode that Jon's parentage wasn't a secret anymore with eight people knowing it, but rather just information at that point. He went ahead and worked damn hard to ensure that that was going to be true. (laughs) Getting that information out there. He is also, by the way, literally trying to kill Danny. It's very tough stuff. Which is important to note. Martha, a little bird who Varys has working in the Dragonstone kitchens. Pure sweet Martha. (laughs) Innocence. Talk about innocence. Innocent Martha. Enters his chambers and the following exchange ensues. She wouldn't eat, Martha says. Varys, you know, banging his rings on the table, lamenting. What's he say? We'll try again at supper. There's only one way to interpret that. He's not trying to nourish Danny. Not at all. He's trying to poison her. That was... Honestly, the most delightfully subtle part of this episode. (laughs) Other characters on the show have killed those who serve them, conspiring against and or trying to kill them. John, of course, Mm. executed the men who tried to assassinate him. I hung a boy. Younger than Brian. Younger than Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Why does that bring us such joy? What's wrong with us? We're sick. I hung a boy. Younger than Brian. Okay, John, I was just like, did you want soup or not? (laughs) So do you want soup? Do you want bread with your soup or no? Tyrion killed Tywin. Two crossbow shots to the gut for numerous Mm. crimes, including sentencing him to death while knowing that he was innocent of the crimes for which he was charged. Rob executed Ricard Cardstark for defying him by killing the Lannister hostages. On and on the list goes. Danny is absolutely justified. Yes. Absolutely justified <laughs> in killing Varys. There is no ruler in Game of Thrones who would have not done what Danny did. Correct. It's treason. He's trying to poison her. The mere fact of his death isn't an issue for her. The subtleties of it are, and that's what we'll get to in a minute. Before his death, he makes a pitch directly to John, which is like— Just are, out in the open on the sand. Like, are you just trying to get killed? They say every time a Targaryen is born, the gods flip a coin and the rem holds its breath. It's a callback to a line we hear in the previously on Targ Madness montage, something Cersei said to Tyrion in season two. 
another primer for what's to come with Danny. But in terms of its effectiveness uh-huh. as an appeal to John, it is absolutely useless. Yeah. He's too stubborn, too loyal to be swayed in this fashion. When John tells Ferris that Danny's decision is hers to make because she is our queen. That's right. That's up there with looked him in the eyes and looked him in the eyes. Hung a boy younger than Bran is his hung a boy. <laughs> go to Johnisms. <laughs> you are my queen. She is our queen. John, we get it. Varys pulls a Tyrion and quotes himself. It's great. He says, "Men decide where power resides, whether or not they know it." And this is another callback in this case to his iconic speech to Tyrion in season two, the answer to the riddle that he posed about the sellsword. Power resides where men believe it resides, he said at the time. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall, and a very small man can cast a very large shadow. Now, Thrones has been exceedingly self-referential of late, but this is the second episode in a row that cited this particular line. Tyrion referenced it last episode, too, remember, when he was talking to Bronn. We on Binge Mode, have called upon this line many, many times because it has always felt like one of the show's signature statements on a signature theme. That's right. Here, though, it kind of just serves to remind us how far off their games Varys and Tyrion both are from where they were when they first shared that exchange. I mean, we've been saying it for a little while now, but it's like now Varys is writing letters. I would really have loved a scene where Varys is writing letters to the lords of the realm saying, hey, Daenerys, the rightful queen, is here. Cersei is weak. Nobody likes her. And all her children are born of incest. Switch over to our side and we'll raise you up as lord and lady of whatever. Who was doing that? Was anyone doing that? Listen, we don't know what his pen pal exchange is like with the new <laughs> Prince of Dorne. That's right. Who the P.O.D. <laughs> the P.O.D. <laughs> who can say? The pod. Where are you? The Varys who said that in season two was the Varys who had been operating in the margins using Ilrio, Jorah, mm. his network of little birds to try and control the realm. This Varys is just going straight to the person. Wild. And being like, hey, uh, let's overthrow Danny." Wild. Saying, I have known more kings and queens than any man living. I've heard what they say to crowds and see what they do in the shadows. I further design, however horrible, what I tell you now is true. You will rule wisely and well while she... This is the guy, by the way, who served the Mad King, King Robert, Joffrey. Yeah. Yes. Tommen and Danny, and is now saying, you know what? She's the worst of all of them. Get out of here, my guy. Are you crazy? It's ludicrous. <laughs> it really is. And think about the equivalent yeah. of him going directly to Viserys right. and saying, let's talk about this instead of using Illyrio as a go-between, instead of conspiring in a way that fostered this reputation he had. Yeah, no subtlety. Among viewers as a real operator. Not to mention, to your point just now about comparing Danny to those other rulers, the rulers that he just boasted to John about, <laughs> I've seen how terrible they are. Listen, I've seen it all. We still don't really understand, up to the moment of his death, what changed for Varys right. as far as when did Danny that goes. What was Shifting it? from the man, remember, who pushes Tyrion to go find Danny when they're at Illyrio's manse in Pentos and yeah. Tyrion is completely without hope. Yeah, absolutely vomiting. drunk. Vomiting. <laughs> He's got 
his own feces under his fingernails from pushing it through the hole. And yet grabs a wine goblet, just guzzles it, Let's go. and then vomits it everywhere. He's a mess. And Vera says, I got the one person for you. The one person who's really worth believing in and rallying behind. Danny had given all of us reasons to say, hmm, which yeah. again, we're going to outline at length shortly. But in the time that Varys has actually been with her, she's acted often quite selflessly, yep. putting her own war against Cersei on hold so that she could go help John, go help the North, go help the living. And the post-long night toast about how they couldn't have done it without the Dragon Queen was correct. They couldn't. And it's like none of that happened. Yeah. And like something else happened instead. It's just so hard to reconcile the moment, the actual time frame in which Varys's shift occurred, not the fact that it did, but the way in which it did and the time in which it did, with the reality of his prior stance and Danny's prior persona. He's not flipping on her after what she did following the bells tolling. He's actually part of what causes her response to them because it's one more betrayal. What's more, Varys himself had promised fire and blood. Yes. In the yes. season six finale, when he united the Martells and the Tyrells, brought Dorn and the Reach to Danny's cause. He truly believes that John seems better equipped to rule. And granted, John was not on his radar before this, and certainly not as Aegon. And Varys once told Ned that he serves the realm. The realm. Someone must. <laughs> he told Danny the same, telling her and then later Tyrion that he fights for the people that so many others forget the people Danny claimed she cared about. I would just hasten to add once again, what exactly is the evidence that he has ever fought for these people? He served, again, the Mad King, Robert, Joffrey, and Tommen, and was not out there like, hey, can we lessen the taxes on the peasants or can we do? He's just like trying to install another ruler. Tell me exactly how you are, quote, out here trying to save the realm, my dude. Yeah, would he have patted himself on the back if he had actually helped install Viserys Targaryen I know. on the Iron Throne? Like, like that would have gone well. Yeah, like, that was your big swing, dude. <laughs> we can't help but recall one of the story's most iconic exchanges between Varys and Littlefinger, season yes. three. The Realm. Love this. Do you know what the Realm is? Tell me. It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies, a story we agree to tell each other over and over until we forget that it's a lie. But what do we have left once we abandon the lie? Chaos. A gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. <laughs> Chaos is a ladder. Uh, I sincerely really missed that. I miss, I miss little finger voice. Varys ultimately tried to climb. We're just not totally sure at the end why he picked this moment or this ladder, basically. Yeah. And Varys did meet a little finger-esque end. Both of them were positioned for so much of the show as these master plotters. And then at the end leading to their respective mm -hmm. demises, they kind of just lost their fastball. But unlike Peter. Peter, please. <laughs> Varys didn't get caught in a web of his own making. Right. You know, Littlefinger taught Sansa the lessons right. that she then used it, to bring He essentially, down. Littlefinger got outplayed yes. in the end. Varys just forgot how to make the web he at all. He just stopped doing stuff. He just wasn't doing anything. When Danny and Varys very briefly buried the hatchet in season seven, Varys told Danny, hey, listen, mm -hmm. let me tell you something. Yep. I am a truth teller. That's right. 
I will say it to your face. He left out the part about first having numerous secret conversations right. on boats and in rooms I of will her castle. Say but it yes, to your face. Eventually. After many, many, many sidebar <laughs> conversations with other people. About a coup. About a coup and trying to poison you. After that, absolutely say to your face. And Daenerys said, and I swear this, if you ever betray me, I'll burn you alive. Guess what? I mean, listen. She was, in this sense, absolutely a woman of her word. <laughs> yeah. And again. It was ju- out there. And justified in doing it. Mm-hmm. As Melisandre told Varys atop the cliffs of Dragonstone, I have to die in this strange country, as do you. Maybe that casual prophecy from Melisandre in some way corrupted Varys's mind. Maybe it caused him to act rashly. And maybe the show, as with so many other characters mm-hmm. and so many other plot points, just ran out of time to properly explain all of the motivations. The result is that Grey Worm comes for Varys, leaving the spider to remove all of his rings, burn the letter that he's writing at the time, which makes us wonder, did he get those other letters off? Who did he send them right, to? Yeah. Perhaps P.O.D.? Did P.O.D. get one of the those P.O.D.? Letters? Gotta think it's possible. And the letters make it hard not to think of Ned yeah. and Stannis. Ned, who only got word to Stannis regarding the truth of Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella's parentage when he learned it. And Stannis, of course, who swore, because of what Ned had done, not to make the same mistake. Spread the word of Jamie yes. and Cersei's twin cest across the land. That was honestly the smartest thing that he ever did. Yes. The thing is, they both wound up dead, and yeah. Varys did too. You bet he did, right on the beaches of Dragonstone, where Stannis became the would-be king of the ashes, yeah. allowing Melisandre to burn the idols and the infidels. A would-be savior, high on his own promise, committing horrors by means of magic as a means to the end he felt he was owed. Stannis isn't the comparison anyone wants to earn, certainly. Except except you, as a Stannis fan. Listen, again, (laughs) book Stannis is not bad, at least at this point. That's it. But in the shows, he paid the ultimate price for his sins. The ultimate price. Uh His family gone, his life forfeit. With Danny and her victims standing on the same shores where Stannis burned so many, we can't help but recall how Stannis mm-hmm. was ultimately proven wrong in his belief in his methods, losing everything after sacrificing so much. The actual death is mesmerizing, really. Oh, yeah. I love the way when she says Dracarys. First of all, I love how quietly and oh, just subtly God. and flat Dracarys. And the way that Drogon appears behind He's like, her from the darkness yes. right before that, it's chilling. It's very chilling, and I love how <gasps> I love how he seems to savor this mm. in a way. Like, mm-hmm. a, almost a reflection of the more primal side of Daenerys before that manifests within herself when she hears the bells and loses it. Yes. But seems to, you know, doesn't just flame on, takes a few steps forward and really seems to eye up mm-hmm. his— victim before finally unleashing that flame. I love that scene, actually. Very, very powerful moment and very representative of the highs and lows of the episode. Because again, the decision-making that gets us to that point is so confounding, but the spectacle of the moment itself is ultimately extraordinary. Yeah. And now John's face here is telling because he looks absolutely disturbed. Yes. (laughs) And let me just say that I find, like, this whole, oh, my God, she's burning people. I get it in terms of the connotation that would have for a Stark in particular. Sure. Yep. At the same time, like, the dragon fire reduces, like, Dickon and Randall were reduced to a pile of ash in, like, two seconds. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely freaking painless. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, this isn't the Shireen funeral pyre. Right. It is essentially no different than hacking off someone's head and probably hurts a lot less, especially if you're talking about, like, Theon Greyjoy out here, like, taking five swings on people's necks. But you're right to cite the Stark family history I think there. that's and important to Also, note. something like, remember, John couldn't stand to watch Mance Raider burn and got the arrow and put Mance out of his misery. He doesn't want people to suffer. Su- exactly. Unless it's Ollie, younger than— <laughs> Younger than Brad, who hung for a while. It took like five, six, seven seconds for Ollie to choke out. That John was fine with. Younger than Brad. Danny's face is interesting as well. Oh, She's yeah. impassive. Yes. As she was when she watched Khal Drogo melt her brother's head so long ago. Mm-hmm. Danny can face death. She can welcome it, even when it's aimed at someone she knows deserves it. It's supposed to be a tone setter for what's to come, a reminder that Danny can look upon violence and death and blood and be like, yes, this is the price that I must pay in order to get where I need to go to the Iron Throne. Yes. Difference, though, is that Varys' death, while horrifying, is absolutely justified by the rules of the story and its land. Again, no ruler in Game of Thrones slash Westerosi history would countenance what Varys did. Right. They would all execute the traitor. What Danny does after the bells ring is absolutely not, or perhaps more accurately, falls into a pattern of Westeros history, but does not comport with the standards Danny has set for herself. That's the difference. No one in this world is exactly surprised that a population gets wiped out by an army that has laid siege to its gates and then has broken in. That happens all the time. It's just that Danny said that she was better than that. That was the thing she wanted to stop. That's the thing. Yep. One of the people who was trying to hold her accountable to that promise has been Tyrion. Let's chat about Tyrion for a minute. Another confounding episode for our dude Tyrion Lannister, though also another just phenomenal Peter Dinklage episode. Really, throughout this entire episode, masterful performances from the actors. Yeah, the actors, this has really been a spotlight season for the actors. Incredible. As the writing has kind of shrunk in focus, let's say. The actors have done some. I to keep going back to that scene with Theon and Sansa that carried more weight than any yeah. Theon scene of the last two or three seasons. Just that look, that that fraught look that they give each other. It's laden with so much emotion. Yes, I mean that was enough for you to be like, I gotta tell you, I'm 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 pro <laughs> Theon now. I never said I was pro <laughs> Theon. It was all it took. I was all it took was Alvy Allen. <laughs> Gazing at Sylvie Turner over a bowl of stew. (laughs) First of all, you know I love soup. I love it. I was just surprised to feel anything. Yeah, it made me feel something, which was a real achievement. And you know, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about Danny and Amelia Clark, but everything that Amelia Clark does with her face and intonations in this episode, really great. Acting has been wonderful. Tyrion's decision making less wonderful. He has continued to devolve from one of the savviest minds in the realm. The man talking about how a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone if it keep its edge into, for a period of time, a utterly defeated nihilist, into someone who is so full of belief in his leader and also in the sister who has failed him time and time again, literally tried to have him murdered more than once. What's a small thing like that between... <laughs> Bygones. Yeah. That he really thinks, he really seems to think that appealing to someone's better nature can work. Even if that better nature is the smallest fractured seed within 
overly ripe, rotten fruit surrounding it. He rats out Varys. Yes, which, he does. Honestly, the smartest thing he's done all season. I like how he owns it. He's like, it was me. It was me. It was 100% me. It was Because, me. like, listen, as we noted last episode, after Varys made his approach to Tyrion on Dragonstone, that's not a conversation you walk away from and forget. That's right. You make your choice there. Either you say something or you're complicit. Mm-hmm. Tyrion tries to convince Danny that he and Varys, as her advisors, need to know about Jon so they can help her. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I thought, a compelling pitch. A little late. A little late, but I thought compelling. Like, yeah. we need to see the board so we can understand where the threats are coming from. Yes, it is a good way to ultimately try to say to her, trust what works both ways. Right, right. You are saying you can't trust us, but how can we think that you trust us or that we should trust you unless you're sharing all the information right. with us that is at your disposal? However, she sees only dangerous people who can't keep their mouth shut mm-hmm. or recognize when information might harm her. And you know what? She's absolutely right. This is a guy, yes. again— you can make the argument that Tyrion has sided with Cersei more than he has sided with Daenerys. He has fought harder for what Cersei wants and what's good for Cersei than he has for Daenerys. You can make that case. Let us never forget, especially now, because in the wake of The Long Night, a lot of people have been talking about Jon's uh, struggles as a battle tactician and blaming him for bad plan. Bad plan was Tyrion's 100% idea. Tyrion's idea. We have to go convince Cersei. Why? Why? <laughs> why? Literally, why? Remember the whole thing about how she's been trying to kill you since you were a child and literally squeezed your dick? Like, and, <laughs> remember that? Remember when Omar Martel was like, hey, uh, I went to Castellay Rock as a boy and I hated everything, the weather, the food, everything. Then, you know, Cersei took us uh, to your cradle and squeezed your cock and pinched it until you cried. It was crazy. Remember that? And now you're like, we got to convince her. What? Wild. She squeezed your cock. But have you considered, though? What? Just to be fair. Yeah. She loves her children. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) She does. I got to tell you. Listen, she was out there squeezing my dick when I was an infant was going to squeeze it off, if not for the fact that Oberyn Martell was there, and has, like, multiple times tried to kill me, has killed many people, blew up, I don't know, 5,000 people. And a historical landmark. And a historical landmark. Loves her kids, though. Gotta tell you, she loves them. Tyrion says, we wanted what you want, a better world, all of us. Varys as much as anyone. (laughs) Yeah. Again, He's relying on the power of good intentions. And why? Right. What that he's seen in this life makes him think that that matters. It's one thing to have good intentions and say, this is what I believe. Yes. That has to manifest in action. Mm -hmm. Cersei loves her kids. She's actually got to do something that shows you that that love for another organism can somehow transfer to Lots of other people who aren't directly related to her. As Jamie will say elsewhere in this episode, most of the horrifying things that Cersei has done are because of that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) This is the man who once told a throne room full of King's Landing elites, I saved you, I saved this city, and all your worthless lives, I should have let Stannis kill you all. Now he's like, hey, uh, you know, stuff that people think, even if they don't act on it, that's enough. Our guy really shouldn't have stopped reading books or having sex. Yeah. I think that's dulled yes. his mind. Clearly. 
A mind needs fucking like a sword <laughs> needs a whetstone. His next appeal to Danny comes in the Dragonstone throne room, where he reminds her, tries to at least, that the people are not her enemies. They're the innocents. Like those, he tells her, that she liberated a Marine, trying to appeal to this moment in her life that was not only foundational, but where she said, I will do what queens do, I will rule. She notes that the slaves liberated themselves after she arrived. So why won't the people of King's Landing do the same? The people, of course, who she has heard for so much of her life, Mm -hmm. were drinking secret toasts in the Targaryen name, sewing banners, just waiting for the dragon lords to return. And Tyrion says that anyone who resists Cersei is going to see their family butchered. And then a truly, truly haunting and unsettling exchange ensues. You can't expect them to be heroes. They're hostages. They are. In a tyrant's grip, whose fault is that? Mine. What does it matter whose fault it is? Thousands of children will die if the city burns. Your sister knows how to use her enemies' weaknesses against them. That's what she thinks our mercy is. Weakness. I beg you, my queen. She's wrong. Mercy is our strength. Our mercy towards future generations he will never again be held hostage by a tyrant. Couple of things. Yeah, this is troubling. Why have Danny talk about mercy here? This makes everything she does after the bells so much worse. At this point, yep. we need to be losing all confidence or not believing, not believing that she still finds value in mercy. Yes. It's part of what makes her flipping the switch moment so flipping of the switch, yeah. so jarring. Yes. Again. Yes, you can foreshadow stuff all you want, but that has to be more than just these little blips. Just because you make a face when someone burns doesn't mean that you then are like, I'm going to burn a million people. I often think of like when people are having an argument and you're like, you know, I could have killed that person. Really? You would have killed them? No, that's a thing you say. Mm -hmm. And to use that as like foreshadowing of this person is a serial killer, it's a lot. The flip side of that idea of mercy is now one of her delusions. That's yeah. kind of muddled here. But the fact that she talks about the innocence of King's Landing, the ones Jorah told her don't care who sits the throne as though they deserve to suffer for where they happen to be as though she's completely off the hook for what befalls them because she didn't put them there. That is scary. So I think we need to A-B the plans that Tyrion puts forth versus what Daenerys wants to do and what they want to talk her out of. Daenerys wants to attack the city now with mm-hmm. the dragons, with the Unsullied, with the Dothraki, right? Tyrion's view is, hey, don't be queen of the ashes. A lot of innocent people are going to die if you do that. Let's do something much more middle ground, low impact. Let's do this. Let's lay siege to the city mm-hmm. and starve it out. And then right. the people will get mad at Cersei, turn on her, and overthrow her. So Which John and everyone else sign off on, by let's, the way. So let's really unpack what they're saying. Attacking the city directly, leading to thousands of deaths by dragon flame and steel, that's bad. But if we merely cut off the food supply, which, by the way, will not in any way affect Cersei and the leadership. They will eat. They will be fine. Right. The common people, right. everybody else who lives in the city, will starve to death. It relies on making those innocents that he's now concerned with suffer. protecting suffer so fully that yeah. they then turn on Using Cersei. them as the kind of lever, mm-hmm. right? The idea being that, you know, once enough parents have watched their children waste away in their arms yeah. from starvation. That's a great point. They will then become so angry at Cersei that they will take up arms 
right? Leading certainly to their own deaths, many of them, as they attempt to overthrow Cersei, and that that is in some way degrees better than what Danny plans to do. Now, maybe it is. I don't know. Like, use your own judgment in that. But really look at it, because what Tyrion is proposing to do is to use the citizens, again, as the frontline shock troops in this attack on Cersei Lannister, to use them as leverage. It's a great point, especially because of how much of the narrative from yes. the characters on the show and the people discussing the show centers on Cersei using the innocent people as, right. in essence, a human shield, and whether that would in some way lead Danny to commit right. this atrocity that she didn't want to commit. But her own people are <laughs> advocating a version of that. Yeah, so Tyrion, absolutely. It's like, let's starve innocent people to death by their thousands until they get mad enough to uh, do something. Not great. <laughs> no. It's not what you want. No. Tyrion is getting desperate at this point. He is realizing that he's not breaking through, and so he brings up Chekhov's bells. I love Chekhov's bells, baby. Which he will— after discussing them with Danny here, then mention them to Jamie, and then mention them the bells to John. He tells Danny that if the bells ring, it means the city has surrendered, right. and begs her to call off the attack if she hears them. Please, she nods, and again, this makes what's to come all the harder to swallow because it really does position what happens in the episode less as, well, we've been moving toward this the whole time, and more as she just snapped. Yeah. She just suddenly snapped. And as Tyrion's leaving her company, she stops him to tell him about Jamie that Jamie mm -hmm. has been captured. It seems he hasn't abandoned your sister after all, she says. The next time you fail me will be the last time you fail me. I mean, it's like eight strikes you're out yeah, for well, Tyrion Lannister. And again, Danny yeah. has a legitimate gripe here Absolutely regarding legitimate. Tyrion's judgment, especially where his siblings are concerned. But it's another moment where we see that all of her dissatisfaction is now manifesting in rage and threats and the promise of violence, which is obviously highly ominous. Tyrion's farewell with Jamie is really moving. Wonderful. One of the great moments of this episode, even though that emotion is undercut by absolutely the confounding nature of what Tyrion is doing. I still do not understand what Tyrion thought his endgame is here. Yeah. Because what does he think is going to happen? What is the best case scenario, right? Daenerys takes the city with the minimum of innocent lives lost. She is queen. But Jaime Lannister has escaped with Cersei. Mm -hmm. Tyrion definitely let him go because, like, I don't know, 35 Unsullied saw him go into the tent. Right. Davos is surely implicated. <laughs> Davos being an excess. Highly implicated. <laughs> probably up to be hung. Next. <laughs> There is actually no version of this in which Tyrion just walks away. Even if Danny takes the city bloodlessly, he would surely stand trial for his life. So, like, what is his endgame here? It's a great question. And it's confounding as he sketches out, well, there will be a dinghy waiting for you by this cove. You just have to follow this extremely convoluted path to this precise location where, spoiler alert, you're on Walt. Also happened to be. Right. And the other thing you need to do is convince Cersei. Again, why does he think that anyone can convince Cersei she loves to her, do anything? She loves her kids. Now, it turns out, ultimately, <laughs> Jamie will be able to convince Cersei to follow him when things get that desperate. Can't wait to talk about that. Very excited to discuss that. Maybe it's just that Tyrion is so desperate to save 
Jamie, who he loves, as we see very, again, very touchingly in this scene, and knows that Jamie won't leave without trying to get Cersei. And so even though Tyrion maybe himself doesn't believe that Cersei will, he's just focused on appealing to that part of Jamie's motivation. But Tyrion has literally stated before that he wants Cersei dead. Right. Literally unambiguously, said, I want her dead. Unambiguously said, I want her dead. He's hand to the queen who is now trying to remove Cersei from power. And that always meant killing Cersei. Always. Like, there was no way to remove Cersei from power without killing her. Yes, right? We should no. make no mistake about that. Right. She wasn't leaving. Right. She wasn't taking a buyout and going to Pentos. That's exactly. not, it's not, not her style. <laughs> no. And he says when Jamie notes that this will surely cost him his life, as you just outlined, that maybe Danny will forgive him if he helps her reach the throne without having to wade over this river of blood. What has he <laughs> seen from Danny that leads him to believe that's possible? Yeah, what? He just watched her roast Varys on the beach. If we can't trust Tyrion's judgment, Tyrion, who has always been the most rational intellectual yeah. on the show, then what can we trust? We're as wobbly as the Red Keep watching him act like in this manner. It becomes a Jenga tower of logic that keeps losing brick after brick. And he's also giving Jamie, by the way, advice that he himself will not follow. Yeah. Why can't Tyrion just go start a new life? Why is he actually so devoted to Danny? And this is no shade of Danny. It's just about assessing Tyrion's motivation and Tyrion's character. He told Varys, at some point, you just have to pick someone to believe in and stick with it. So, okay, maybe it's that. But his eulogizing on Danny's behalf has always felt like just a degree removed from the reality of their relationship, yeah. hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, exiting season seven, it seemed like he was in love with her. We thought heading into season By eight the way, that, that was going to be that a plot. Was, listen, there's a lot of dangling. We can get into this at some point, probably in the final episode, yeah. about all the dangling yes. plot lines that it seemed like they were seeding. That was absolutely one that they were seeding. It definitely seemed like it. <laughs> so it seemed like that would be the explanation for this pained and often misguided devotion. But most of the exchanges that we have witnessed between them since Danny returned to Marine. Certainly everything in season seven and eight have been putting it most charitably would be yeah. deeply fraught. Danny chastising Tyrion, threatening to remove him from his position, recently threatening his life, not so subtly. Tyrion questioning Danny's decisions about things she had done or was about to do. The show hasn't really sold his devotion to her well enough for us to understand how he's in this spot right now. And certainly, as we've outlined, has not explained how he has had this change of heart regarding Cersei. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the theme of what we're seeing here. Tyrion's willingness to die in order to save many other people, however, is moving. Yes. He says, tens of thousands of innocent lives, one not particularly innocent dwarf. Seems like a fair trade. He's doing, in a way, what Danny swore to, but hasn't. Yep. Valuing those lives above his own personal advancement. Mm -hmm. He's ready to die, but to save people and to stop Danny, not to help her. Yep. The moment of parting the Brothers Lannister, mm. is actually, like, quite moving. And again, a testament to the excellent work of these two actors yes. who have so much chemistry on screen. And to the excellent scenes that Game of Thrones can still deliver when we do yes. get meaningful conversations between the characters we cherish. Absolutely. If it wasn't for you, Tyrion says, after noting he never thought he'd get to repay the favor Jamie did him when he freed him from King's Landing in the dungeons on the eve of his certain death, I never would have survived my childhood. You would have. Jamie says, you were the only one who didn't treat me like a monster. You were all I had, and they embrace and cry. 
That's that includes that. Cersei, by the way, who pinched my cock until I fucking cried, but she loves her kids, so it's all good. <sighs> because of the <laughs> allusions to their time in the dungeons together when Tyrion was a prisoner in season four, we also can't help but think about one of the things that they talked about down in those dungeons during that time. Cousin Orson. Remember Cousin Orson? Orson! He of the Beatles smashing. How many countless living, crawling things smashed and dried out and returned to the dirt? Tyrion asked Jamie back then. His larger question, what was the point? Tyrion told Jamie and us that he obsessed over this question, and now he's making us think about that kind of thing for different reasons entirely. What was the point? What was the point of Tyrion trying to find someone to believe in? Challenging those that he knew needed to fall, leading the charge at the Mudgate, all of it. Yeah. As he watches Danny unleash her dragon fire on the innocence of King's Landing, standing as he is amid the ash and the bone of her destruction, similarly to how he was standing amid the carnage after loot train attack, but this time he's looking on in horror as the bells go unheeded, he and we cannot help but feel the show's increasingly nihilistic message Uh creeping over us. Zach Cram wrote a great piece about this in The Ringer this week. Is this what the show is trying to tell us? That there's no point or that it's at least worth asking constantly what was the point of trying for something better than what came before if the results are only loss and horror? That's a really, really deflating message. I think we're going to spend a lot of time after the finale talking about what the moral of the story ultimately is. But right now, we have a lot of reasons to think that it's a very nihilistic one. Tyrion, remember, once told Danny, you're in the great game now. and The great game is terrifying. What a fucking blowhard he once was. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out it was absolutely as terrifying for him as it was for anyone and as hard to play. Yes. Can he recover some of that mojo in the finale? Can he find a way to still Mm -hmm. break the wheel, to foment that kind of revolutionary change that he so desired? Bring on the Republic! After the wheel broke Danny and so many others, maybe, but the spin that brought us here crushed a lot of Beatles along the way. And you know what? Tyrion is about to face some... I think his, absolutely his final, of course, it's the finale, but it is his final and most dire trial yet. Mm -hmm. Great sign that in the penultimate episode, not only of the season, but of the series, we're talking about Ollie and Orson more than Bran. Younger than Bran! (laughs) Hunger boy! (laughs) Younger than Bran. Good old Ollie. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Mm. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy. And you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. Wow. But they don't stop there. Oh, but their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site. Listen to this. Within the first day! Oh my God! And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-I-N-G-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash binge. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by Luminary. If you're a podcast and movie fan, like we are, 
then you need to check out Luminary. They've just launched a bunch of great original shows that you can only find on their platform, including spin-off of one of our own Ringer podcast The Rewatchables called The Rewatchables 1999. It takes that same great Rewatchables formula that you know and love and applies it strictly to movies in the year 1999. Great movie year. Great podcast. We're also excited about a brand new podcast musical from John Cameron Mitchell called Anthem. It combines the density of series television with the excitement of musical theater and live concert. The Luminary app is free to download, and you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including the ones you already love, like Binge Mode. All enhanced by an easy-to-use interface with personalized content recommendations. Whether you're into movies, music, sports, comedy, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. If you love podcasts, then you need to check out Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash binge mode. After that, it's $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash binge mode for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash binge mode. Cancel any time. Terms apply. And now, back to binge mode. Okay, let's get to the heart of the episode. The Sack of King's Landing, Danny's turn to Queen of the Ashes. And before we get into the storytelling choices here, we do want to take just a moment to really toast the filmmaking achievement because this was visually and auditorily stunning, the kind of thing that we truly cannot believe we are seeing on our television screens on Sunday nights. Astonishingly, this was not filmed in Dubrovnik on location as the prior King's Landing sequences had been. They built an entire King's Landing set on their lot in Ireland. Unreal. Before we get to Danny's destruction of King's Landing, let's... Step back for a minute to the previously on segment that preceded the episode, which ends with a soundbite montage of warnings about Danny in particular and Targaryens in general over a visual of the rage on Danny's face at the end of last episode after Cersei in the Mountain executed Missandei. Here, before the episode even began, the intention was unmistakable. Yes. They were going to absolutely do it. And by the way, let me just say this. When you have narrative audio in montage form without the video as crucial exposition to your story. I don't want to be too harsh, but I feel like it's an acknowledgement that the substance of your story does not contain enough information for the audience to understand what is happening. It's a tacit admission that that is what has happened. After everything that unfolded, in the episode at the beginning with Varys, with Tyrion, with Jon on Dragonstone, Danny heads to battle on Drogon's back, and she emerges from this blot of sunshine that is blinding the Iron Islanders who are looking up into the clouds. Goes full Harrenhal, comes from straight above, down upon her prey, and decimates the Iron Fleet with such ease that it actually just makes Rhaegal's death from the prior episode even harder to stomach. Because... One thing in this episode, no matter how you felt about it, is just inarguable. Drogon was unstoppable. Unstoppable. We see what a dragon can do here. So, yes, Rhaegal was wounded last episode, and that clearly impacted his ability to fly. He shouldn't have been flying. He didn't have a rider. He didn't have someone to help him guide him. But three flawless crossbow bolts to pierce him and take him down with ease when Drogon in this episode absolutely annihilated an entire army in about 45 seconds. Absolutely maddening and feels like, to Jason, to your recurring point, one more choice that they made to just knock Danny down artificially. Yeah, I mean, watching that, I was just thinking, man, day one, 
arriving in Dragonstone, fly one dragon, not even three, fly one dragon to the Red Keep and melt it. Mm-hmm. And then you're done. It's over. Finito. Not to mention, by the way, if Rhaegal was part of this fight, his death could have been used as the spark. Mm-hmm. As many on the internet have noted, the spark that helped better justify Danny's choice. You know, have the bells ring. Danny on Drogon and Rhaegal mm-hmm. by himself are kind of perched on a wall or on some building. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of those scorpion bolts pierces Rhaegal's chest and he dies there. And that's the thing right. that makes Danny feel that she has to burn the city. It's strange that they didn't do that. And then her pursuit of fire and blood would have at least seemed justified in the moment. Right, right. After she burns the fleet, she and her one dragon <laughs> turn to the walls of King's Landing and blast the gate and the absolutely blindsided Golden Company out of the way, which is... Unbelievable. It's honestly hysterical. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> is it supposed to be? I don't know. But clearly something changed between seasons to go to. from the Golden Company being yeah. set up as this massive Had to. force. Again, heading into season eight, and even after episode one of season eight, we spent a long time, long time. talking about could the Golden Company be staging a newfangled black fire? Never broken a contract. Never broken a contract. <laughs> Play for the throne. Never broken a contract. Yeah, and Showland, there's no young Griff, you know? So they were, we thought, going to be real they, players. And instead, I, Harry Strickland got got in about two seconds. Ran in a straight line like Rickon. There absolutely must be Golden Company footage and some kind of like alternate Golden Company plotline that got cut because otherwise it just doesn't make sense to waste any screen time at all on these fucking people. At like, least we understand at, at last why we didn't get the elephants. That would have been a real waste. We do not, like, Harry Strickland has literally two lines and then freaking dies. Excellent beast, Your Grace. Unbelievable. <laughs> the ease with which Danny and her forces who get in on the Golden Company slang fun, blast through Cersei's defense is almost astonishing. Danny and Drogon here rain fire down upon the walls, removing every single bigger crossbow from existence in the flash of a flame. She barely even needed her army, ultimately. Victory really was fast, and it was absolute, and it was essentially solo. And that, of course is what makes what happens next so astonishing and devastating. The Lannister soldiers lay down their swords, the bells ring, just as Tyrion said they would. And then Daenerys Targaryen, the mother of dragons, Khaleesi the Great Grassy, Breaker of Chains, the Unburnt, et cetera, et cetera. You know the damn words. She listens to the sound of the bells. She listens to the shouts of the people who are begging for those bells, begging for a reprieve. She looks out into the distance to the Red Keep, her birthright. Now, just a arm's reach away and her face quivering with rage, takes off on Drogon's back and burns the city to the ground, murders thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. We know that there are a million people in King's Landing. Innocence destroys in mere moments the very thing that she worked her whole life to reach. And Cersei didn't force her to. The realities of the battle didn't force her to. The opposing army didn't force her to. She had won, and yet she chose fire and blood. Now we can hold to... Opposing views in our mind at the same time. Yes, and we do. Yes. Danny's turn to Queen of the Ashes absolutely has been foreshadowed throughout the story, in the books as well as the show. And by all indications, something akin to this 
ending for Daenerys is where she will end up at the end of the books if we ever get there. And yet, too, in the moment, it just felt so abrupt, mm-hmm. absolutely rushed, and you don't want to react too strongly, but tragic in the way that it it felt like a reversal that came out of seemingly nowhere. Now, yes, she had said, I will burn cities to the ground. We got all that coming. We, you know, like, she said a lot of stuff. We got all of it coming. You can say a lot of things and not do it. For instance, you know, Cersei loves her kids. What has she done? She killed a lot of people. You know what I mean? And so this was tragic and not in the way that it should have felt tragic. Danny's arc has always felt like it was heading towards a more Shakespearean right. kind of tragedy. I think Mal and I agree. The thing that we were thinking of that we would readily accept, as sad as it is, is a woman driven by her ambition and ideals who along the way trying to get home to the one place where she belongs that she's been told about, the one place that she can hang on to in her mind as something that belongs to her as an orphan cast away in, in a strange land. In that mission to get back there, she gives away piece by piece these bits of herself, these ideals of herself, and trades them for an opportunity to acquire just a little bit more power so that she'd have a better chance to get back to her home. And that when she does, she's given away so much of herself that she is no longer the same person. That would have been a tragedy. Yes. That's not really what happened. No. Instead, we get the instant flip of a switch. After victory had been secured, that compromised so much of the groundwork that, again, had been laid for that type of tragic demise. A meteoric rise that leads to a cataclysmic fall and instead positions Danny's turn as her snapping as a power-mad and crucially yes. unhinged female ruler. That's the thing that's Two power-hungry women facing off in this moment of the show who couldn't handle the heartbreak. So let's dive into both of those truths in greater depth to explore how real both of them are. First, that Danny's turn had been foreshadowed throughout the entire story. There are too many examples to explore now, but we want to go through a decent number of them because they're very illuminating and given the mass outrage around this storytelling choice, really important to explore. First, let's talk about the visions. There are two that are worth remembering. Mm -hmm. One, the dragon shadow over the red roofs of King's Landing, which we saw in Bran's visions in season four and season six. We got that shot at last here in this episode, Drogon's wings beating toward that destruction. The showrunners from all reports learned George R. R. Martin's ending between seasons three and four. This shot, which again, first appears in season four, has always felt to us like the promise of a dragon and thus fire and blood yes. cascading over King's Landing. And that's what happened. Last season, we had a moment where we wondered, could this be Viserion? Once mm-hmm. Viserion went to the Night King. But Danny always seemed most likely because of another vision. That's right. The throne room in ruins, which we saw in Brand season four vision as well, but saw previously in Danny's journey through the House of the Undying in Karth in season two. The wreckage always seemed like it was likely to be caused by dragons yeah. because of the fire damage, wildfire, of course, another possibility, which could have possibly torn down the walls in addition to the roof. And we wondered whether what we saw falling was snow, mm-hmm. winter, or ash, mm-hmm. or some cataclysmic fire. 
our friend Joanna Robinson has clarified unambiguously that it was meant at the time to be snow. It was written as such in the script. But it feels like we're going to get a retcon here, right? And honestly, it makes sense. It does. Plus, even snow plays as a prophetic rendering of John and Danny's fear of him on the throne instead. I love that, actually. Beyond the visions, we have plenty of other moments, plenty of other lines that we can turn to, including Danny's somewhat routine mentions of fire and blood and her very pointed promise in Karth to, quote, lay waste to armies and burn cities to the ground. Before that, in Vastothrak in season one, she sanctioned her brother's death by molten gold poured overhead, crowned for a king, remember? Make no mistake, Viserys was a monster, he was an abuser, he was a horror, and he deserved to die. But it is still notable, again, this idea of maintaining multiple truths in our mind at once, because it showed us early on that Danny had the capacity to unleash a certain type of hell upon her enemies. Now, what's the operative word there? Enemies. Which, again, highlights the miscalculation that this episode made in having her massacre innocent people instead of just burning down King's Landing to get to Cersei. It's a great point. A couple of quotes we heard in the previously on are worth revisiting. Aemon's line to Sam, a castle black, a Targaryen alone in the world is a terrible thing. And we see how absolutely right he was. Yes. What Danny turns to in place of connections with people she cares about is just violence. And then there's Barristan's line from the previously on, which is also worth revisiting in full. When the people rose in revolt against him, your father set their towns and castles aflame. He murdered sons in front of their fathers. He burned men alive with wildfire and laughed as they screamed. And his effort to stamp out dissent led to a rebellion that killed every Targaryen except two. I'm not my father, Danny says. No, your grace. Thank the gods. But the mad king gave his enemies the justice he thought they deserved. And each time, it made him feel powerful and right until the very end. A version of the justice he thought they deserved is something that we have actually heard from Danny more than once. Another moment with Barristan comes to mind here. Sometimes it is better to answer injustice with mercy, he said to her and Maureen. What was her reply to that? I will answer injustice with justice. And then she crucified every master of Maureen, despite, as she'd later learned from his dar, some of those masters having been opposed to the very things that she was fighting against. Similarly, when Yunkai fell again after they had left, Danny wanted to send Dario back to eliminate all of the uprisers in full. Because they were treating people like beasts. What did Jorah tell her? Well, doing that is also treating people like beasts. When Danny needed to suss out the power behind the Sons of the Harpy, she brought certain masters down to the catacombs where she was keeping Viserion and Rhaegal at the time. Burned one alive, it seemed almost for sport. That's one of the most Mad King-esque moments Danny has had, where you look at her as that's happening and you say, does she like this? Yeah. And she did not know. If that man bore any responsibility for what was happening, the point was to intimidate other people, to make a lesson out of his demise. Quote, they can live in my new world or they can die in their old one, she once said, Mm. of the people opposing her reign in Slaver's Bay. And that, plus the aforementioned violence, is a lens with which to consider her style and her instincts towards power. She fought to fight the oppressors, yes, undoubtedly, but often savagely, often in a way that blurred the line between what she was stopping and what she was doing. It's not right, for example, to abuse prisoners of war, but Danny did time and again, acting as judge, jury, and executioner when she deemed someone's morality lacking. And even though it often was lacking, she shouldn't have that right. No one should. And yet, I think it's also important to note that it wouldn't be out of torturing a prisoner in this world 
while would be certainly frowned upon by people like Ned and et cetera, it wouldn't exactly be uncommon. <laughs> it would not be uncommon. When she was returned to Marine, her first instinct upon finding the city under siege was, I will crucify the masters. I will set their fleets mm-hmm. of fire. I will kill every last one of their soldiers and mm. return their cities to the dirt. Chill. Tyrion, again, talks her out of it. Before she returned, she burned all the cows of Vaistothrak. Yep. Now, again— Which you stand for. I do stand for it. A hundred percent. First of all, they had her in prisoner. Yes. Let's just explore the nuance of it. Okay. <laughs> Many of those cows were bad people who did terrible things. I would yes. go, all of the cows were bad people who did terrible things. I would say all. They were all dudes who rode out and slaughtered entire villages and carried people off into slavery. So was Drogo. Yes. Danny came to love him. And stood up to him when her men were abusing prisoners of war. Absolutely. But to Jorah's point, you know, if Ned had cut off his head, Jorah never would have found the path to redemption. I mean, again, like they— Danny kills people instantly. Yeah, but they, again, had her prisoner and were like— Of course. I, I guess Not defending what if, the vile cows, just noting that her instinct to instantly wipe them all off the face of the earth points to how we were laying the groundwork I, here for I would just say that I don't think it's like— I don't think that particular thing was like instinct. It was more like she had to escape this or they were going to torture her to death. She was outside with Jorah and Dario, and could have left right then, but instead decided to go back in, round them all up, trap them inside a hut, and burn them alive. Well, she needed the Dothraki. <laughs> um, she needed the Dothraki. She needed to take their entire culture herself. She did. Okay. It does recall the famous line from Tolkien from yeah. Lord of the Rings. Many that live yes. deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Danny, whether you think an individual decision for the calls or anything else is right or wrong, is almost, in terms of this larger point, slightly irrelevant. Yes. The larger point is that she has long believed that the answer to that for her is yes, that she right. does get to decide, that she does get to dole out judgment. And the thing is, that's not governance. That's not liberation. That's tyranny. It's the exact thing she says she's trying I, to stop. I would counter by this. It is governance in this world, and all governance in this world is tyranny. There is literally no democracy in this world. Then that's also fine, but she doesn't see the difference. She doesn't think what she's doing is tyrannical. Again, just to defend her, when people are like, hey, don't do that, 95% of the time she goes, okay, I won't. Yeah, but we're talking about the times when she did do it. It's like, it's literally (laughs) like two times. I mean, it it isn't. I mean, it's, it's really not that many times. The masters, again, I'm, I'm fine with it. They own slaves. Burn the guy. Burn the guy in the temple. I don't care if he did. He did something. It's fine to me. This portion of the podcast is not meant to defend the masters or the calls. It's meant to show a pattern of behavior for Danny that foreshadows her ultimate I, I, turn. And I agree, I agree <laughs> broadly with it. But yes. again, I kind of feel like we're judging Danny on a curve because she's like, I want to break the wheel. And at the same time, I just don't think she's No, degreed. but it's not about judging her behavior because I think we both are ultimately Danny fans and people yes. who believed in her. Neither of us is saying that Danny is a bad person or wrong. It's just about showing in response to the many, many people out there who are saying this totally came out of nowhere that oh, yeah. that is sure, actually sure, sure, sure. not true. This pattern, of course, continued in Westeros when Danny burnt Randall and Dickon, mm. Tarly alive Dickon. instead of imprisoning them despite them being defeated at that point and fully in her power. That went 100%. She went too far. Randall, fine. Dickon, you don't let him just be like, I'd like to die too. No, shut up. Go home. Go to Hornhill, you idiot. 
And think of Barrison again. He opposed Robert during his rebellion, but then stayed on as Kingsguard. Mm-hmm. Danny's ancestor, Aegon the Conqueror himself, when Torrin Stark knelt, made him Warden of the North. When Lauren of House Lannister surrendered, he named a Warden of the West. There has long been room for mercy and justice, and that's been true for Danny too, but we've seen many moments where her thirst for her version of justice trumped everything else. Again, not the same as slaughtering innocents for no reason, but groundwork for Danny eventually succumbing to the pull of power amid loss in her life. And then think of all the moments that season eight alone has brought. And I think part of the problem, we would all agree, is that so many of these moments have been mm-hmm. concentrated to season eight, but there they are nonetheless. Danny's whatever they want line about what dragons eat in response to Sansa played for a laugh at the time, but it also spoke to this hubris that can at times belie her tenderness. When Sam told John that he was Aegon Targaryen, Sam, who many of us consider to be among the most open-hearted and open-minded characters in the story, says to John, Danny's not fit to rule. You gave up your crown to save your people, Sam asked him. Would she do the same? And when he asked that, we all had to stop and wonder. And I think many of us probably arrived at the conclusion that the answer to that question was no, which is notable. Just last episode, when Danny agreed to go parlay with Cersei in King's Landing, it was not because she believed that she stood a chance of saving Missandei. It was because she wanted the people in the realm to blame Cersei, not her, for what she was about to do. Quote, they should know who to blame when the sky falls down upon them. That's premeditation. (laughs) All my life, she told Sansa early in season eight, I've known one goal, the Iron Throne. And that's valid, but it's also different from the one goal of freeing the masses from tyranny. And we've seen Danny's mission shift from something more altruistic to something more fully rooted in the pursuit of power and her belief in her birthright. Ferris told Tyrion, the best ruler may be the one who doesn't want it. Well, that's not Danny, and it's not the type of ruler George R. R. Martin or fantasy stories in general tend to reward. Unfortunately, Danny's the one who came to us with three dragons, so what are you going to do? <laughs> you just you dance with the one who brought you. That's right. Danny believes in her destiny, and she has plenty of reason to, as we heard her tell Varys as recently as last episode. In Karth, she spoke of her dreams coming true. This has been part of her storyline for a while. When Melisandre mentioned the fabled prince who was promised, Danny immediately said, oh, you think that might be me? <laughs> None of those things make Danny evil. None of those things make Danny a bad person. A lot of that is extremely relatable. You know, think of how Lewin said to Bran, who wouldn't want to be special? Mm-hmm. But they clarify the central role that the throne and its power have occupied and increasingly come to occupy in her heart. You pair that with a dragon which is, yes, a delightful fantasy creature, but also a weapon of mass destruction. And horror can start to feel inevitable. There is a reason that the Targaryen words are fire and blood. A few notable passages from the books. From Dance, Mother of Dragons, Mother of Monsters, What Have I Unleashed Upon the World? A queen I am, but my throne is made of burned bones and it rests on quicksand. Without dragons, how could she hope to win back Westeros? I am the blood of the dragon. If they are monsters, so am I. Hello. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Also from dance, remember who you are, what you are made to be. Remember your words, fire and blood. When stepping into Drogo's pyre at the end of Game of Thrones, the fire is mine. I am Daenerys Stormborn, daughter of dragons, bride of dragons, mother of dragons. Don't you see? Again, that idea of destiny. In season seven, when John and Danny met, she said, I was born to rule the seven kingdoms, and I will. Pretty clear. Varys begged Danny last episode to not become the thing that she had always struggled to defeat, but when she says something like, now we will win the last war, it doesn't play fully as liberation, even if that's sincerely her intent. It plays like this misguided hubris of a conqueror who believes fully that she can change the world. 
as said on Talk the Thrones on Sunday night, that line between liberator and conqueror has always been as thin as the edge of a blade. And this was the season when Danny traveled along that edge to the pointy end and stopped being able to see the difference. But that brings us to that second truth. Yes. You can hold all of those things to be true. You can acknowledge them as indicators that Danny has increasingly crossed the line and gone against the ideals which she has espoused. This was coming. And, and you can believe that, however convincing in terms of the overall plot outcome, none of this really delivers what you would need in order to believe that Danny would do this in that moment of victory, the bells ringing. She has won. She's won. Mm -hmm. The Lannisters have surrendered. And then for reasons, because she sees the Red Keep as explained inside the episode, and that enrages her for some reason. She didn't see it before, I guess. And then that would make her decide to then willingly burn thousands of people, just burn them wantonly, a thing which she has never done before or even really come close to doing, attacking civilians. Not long ago, Tyrion told Danny, you need to inspire a degree of fear, but fear is all Cersei has. It's all my father had in Joffrey. It makes their power brittle because everyone beneath them longs to see them dead. This was, crucially, never the case for Daenerys before. Yep. She always had more than fear. Grey Worm followed her because of loyalty and love. Missandei loved her. Mm -hmm. Barristan loved her. Mm -hmm. She felt, once she got to Westeros, that she had lost that love. And that is crucial. Far more people in Westeros love you than me, she said to John in this episode. I don't have love. I only have fear. And that's really devastating. Mm -hmm. Really, really devastating, especially for someone like Danny, who is so used to having that love, to being adored. And that adoration is not always a good thing. But she was in a position of liberating in the first place because of what Jorah called her yes. gentle heart. She could not stand to let the masters of Slaver's Bay dehumanize yes. these legions of people. She sincerely wanted to make a difference in the world. That is a part of who Danny is. Absolutely. That goodness has been there for her entire arc. To see it vanish so instantly and so fully is really, really tough to process. Even before she became a liberator and a queen and the mother of dragons, back during Drogo's attack of the Lazarene, she protected many of the people who were being taken by the Dothraki as slaves, ultimately, in Miri's case, at yeah. great personal cost to herself. Danny chained two of her dragons in the catacombs of Marine because Drogon had killed one child. She felt so bad about it. One child, and it, she chained two-thirds of her strength below the catacombs of Marine. The truncated nature of season seven and eight compromised the ability to properly execute Danny's turn. She was just saying she didn't want to be Queen of the Ashes, and now she is. And she's here. Why is she here? Because she followed the advice of her advisors almost to the letter. Every time they asked her to do something, she did it. Every time they asked her to mediate her impulses, she did it. And yet that was used against her in a way, especially by Varys, who all of a sudden was like, man, I don't trust what she's going to do. I don't believe in what she's going to do. And the evidence he used for that was... Her reaction, her naturally frustrated reaction to the failures of the various plans which her advisors foisted on her. It's a very strange thing. Speaking of which, Grey Worm. What was this? One of the reasons for acquiring the Unsullied yeah. in the very first place, yeah. as Jorah says, mm -hmm. is they are so well-trained and so loyal and so disciplined that unlike 
mercenary troops, unlike standard armies, which are made mostly of peasant levies and knights and stuff, they won't sack a city if you tell them don't do that. And yet here is Grey Worm just off the chain with the safety off, spearing guys. Part of what was really upsetting about this is that Grey Worm and Danny have something in common here, which is that they've lost somebody they love. Mm-hmm. And the show's message on the role of love is pretty confusing at this point. I, it's something that I think we'll have to return to after the finale yeah. where we see where a few things land. But is the message supposed to be that if you lose somebody, you're broken forever? You can't make good decisions anymore? Right. I mean, that's pretty damning. That's what happened with the two of them. Right. So we don't get the Tywin-esque, the battle is over. We have won from Danny. Instead, she kills a bunch of people. And as Jason is outlined, that's not necessarily contrary to Westerosi history, mm-hmm. but it is contrary to the standard that Danny has set for right. herself and the standard that others hold her to. It's not progress, which is what Danny has long aspired to achieve. It's not breaking the wheel. It's breaking the promise to herself and to everyone else. Even if Danny still just wants to go kill Cersei right there in that moment, fine. Fly to the Red Keep just and go do it. do it. Just go do it. Why do you need to go up and down every street of the Red for Keep? Twi- for like 20 minutes. On the way. F- quite a long time. The show here traded shock and the impact of that moment, the stunning nature of that moment for character development and logic, plain and simple. This is the worst example of it, but we have seen other examples of it in these truncated seasons. Consider as just one other instance, not getting the scene in season seven when Sansa, Arya, and Bran piece together the Littlefinger subterfuge before they execute Mm. him. The explanation on the inside of the episode and game revealed is misplaced, we would say, one. And by the way, Again, a tacit acknowledgement that there's just not enough information within the actual episodes. That it has become, and I think anybody who watches these would agree, over the last two seasons has become absolutely necessary to understand what's going on to watch these, which shouldn't be the case. And B, the explanation is simply not good enough. It felt in that moment like a hollow victory, they say. Staring at the Red Keep, her birthright, her long-awaited home didn't feel right. What? (laughs) She feels empty. Miguel Sapachik said, it wasn't what she thought it was. It's not enough. And that leads her to murder tens of thousands of people. The thing that's not enough is that explanation. It's just really (laughs) tough to do. And listen, we can all understand what happened. There was an ending they wanted to get to. Yes, and they reverse engineered. And they backmapped it. And they ran out of time. Backmapped it throughout the episodes. Okay, but it still didn't play. Yeah, the thing is, they ran out of time. The pacing and the plotting was off has been the through line of the discussion around season eight. And there have been a lot of moments where it's been somewhere between, oh, that's a little bit of a bummer to this is pretty damning. This is the moment where they risk destroying a crucial character for a large swath of the fandom. We don't feel that strongly about it. Again, we're, we're maintaining both of these truths in our mind at once. But there are a lot of people who said, Daenerys Targaryen was my hero, and I have no idea how we got here. No idea. And that's a problem if people feel that way. Now, the issue with this now is that when you present this turn in this truncated manner, Mm -hmm. right, where it seems like an emotional response that happens in a moment and literally is presented that way, what you get is a woman who snaps. Yep. The power-hungry lady just kind of went crazy which is particularly harmful given what it says about combating mental illness, illness, but also doesn't track despite the above foreshadowing with any of Danny's history of balancing her worst impulses, which again, have always been there, with restraint and counsel heating. So much counsel heating this season, particularly like the meeting with Cersei in general was counsel heating. Right. 
enough change to change her, but not like this, not this quickly. Yeah. George R. R. Martin has said that, as we've discussed before, and well, again, the primary interest for him is exploring the conflict within the human heart. And that makes this ultimate arc for Danny a fascinating storytelling choice. We think that that's where her story is going in the books, too. Not, again, this specific fashion, but the Queen of the Ashes. Mm-hmm. Even though it undoubtedly hurts everybody who's rooted for Danny for so long, we need to see the conflict, the conflict in her heart. We need more access to it and to be there for it every step of the way. You know, we often talk about show, don't tell in journalism and storytelling, everything. The thing is, Game of Thrones has always excelled at the telling and at pairing the telling with the showing. All those conversations and all those glorious grand rooms that Tyrion likes to talk about, that's so often how we came to understand the character. So showing us a character who finally, finally arrived home, arrived at her goal, arrived with those people who she thought would help her, only to have it all melt away is completely gripping as a narrative choice, showing us how lost, which Danny has suffered in stunning fashion in recent weeks, her best friends and closest advisors in Jorah and Masante, two of her dragons, if you factor in Viserion before and Rhaegal last episode, half of her forces, has filled her with despair and dread. She lives in fear of betrayal. She's tasted it so many times. In the book, Danny's three betrayals is a prophecy. That's how big of a role betrayal plays in her life. She doesn't believe in Tyrion. In the book, she begs Dario not to betray her. Daris turned on her. Sansa wants her gone. She fell in love with Jon, who wound up being the true heir to the Iron Throne, the one thing she wants, and the person who almost everyone who needs to support her now clearly prefers. Who would not be impacted by that? Who would that not break or threaten to break? Show us all that. Of course, that's valid. That's compelling. But again, Show the tragedy of that. Give us more than one episode of Danny looking haggard in a bathrobe and so defeated. When Tyrion goes to tell Danny about Varys and Danny rationalizes it as really being Jon's betrayal, that's a pretty stunning portrait of a person who has lost the ability to distinguish friend from foe. Show us more things like that before we get to this moment because that kind of storytelling is ultimately what allows us to accept that Danny could eventually lose herself. And again, those choices would absolutely set up, say, an attack on John, mm-hmm. an attack on one of her advisors, but an attack on tens of thousands of innocent people, tougher. And when Danny's on Drogon burning the city, we only see the dragon flying above, not her. And we see, of course, the devastation of yes. the people on the street. The showrunner said it was important to show the horror on the ground to focus on the people Danny was slaying. And that's important, undeniably. It's also an undeniably powerful choice to show Danny as now fully the dragon, the perspective in this scene, a symbol of her metamorphosis in flame. I'm watching that again. I thought about a line from Susan Sontag's Regarding the Pain of Others, which is an excellent mm. essay on violence as depicted in the media and how political that can be. She says here, when talking about pictures that show soldiers and dead people, or the images may be too terrible and need to be suppressed in the name of propriety or out of patriotism, like the images showing, without appropriate partial concealment, our dead. To display the dead, after all, is what the enemy does. Mm. And that's what they're trying to do here, is turn Danny in a moment into the enemy by taking away any opportunity for you to feel empathy with what she's going through, showing you only the devastation and none of her perspective. Because a faceless figure who wantonly kills innocent people is the enemy. That is extremely well put. 
and framed. My counterpoint, not to that logic, but to their actual choice, is that we've spent eight seasons with Danny, and we deserve to see her processing what she's doing. Again, speaks to why this just feels so abrupt. Yep. Absolutely. What's the emotion on her face as she's looking down? What is she thinking? At the horror she's on. It's also, by the way, antithetical to the story as it's been told to this point. This is a story about not black and white characters, about gray characters. The Night King is so out of left field because he's the person who we just can never reach, never understand. And here we are at the ultimate moment of a character crossing over to the dark side, and we just kind of, like, can't reach her, have no understanding of what's going on in her head. Yeah. It lets— her and them off the hook because we don't get to see, is there regret? Is there joy? Is there indifference? Which of those is actually more terrifying? We don't get to see it or think about that in that way. And state of mind is particularly crucial to spend a bit of time discussing because Danny has always lived in fear of becoming her father. We see that more fully in the books. But the Targaryen legacy of madness is a very present thing on the show as well. And a theme in this story has been Children are not their parents. We've heard it from John. We've heard it from Tyrion. We've heard it from Danny herself. So what is this choice to have Danny break bad in this way actually represent mm-hmm. and say? Is the show saying that Danny was always doomed because of the coin flipping? Right. Because her coin was always going to land a certain way? The showrunners have said that if the circumstances had been different, Danny would not have done this. So it isn't fate. Right. It isn't predestined. Okay. There's comfort there, but if that's the message, then it makes it even more imperative to f- allow us full access to understanding her choices. Recall what Pycelle once said to Roz as she was washing her vagina in a bowl. <laughs> of all this horror and horror, God's vision upon us, madness is the worst. <laughs> and the same story that offers up that assessment can't in any way trivialize the affliction. And think of how much time Ares Targaryen spent ruling mm-hmm. as his madness crept over him, worsening after his imprisonment at the defiance of Duskendale, leading him to refuse food for fear of poison and burn people alive for pleasure and threaten to lay the entire city low. He reigned for ages before Jamie and Tywin and Robert and Ned stopped him. Danny's going to die next episode. Yep. It now seems inevitable, of course, after. And I don't want to underrate what she did, but after this one moment, uh-huh. it just feels like not enough to balance out what the other good things that she's done. Yeah, and there's some visual cues that allow us to process that comparison. The Mad King is present in this episode yeah. because his stores of old wildfire are popping off across the city as Drogon's flames are triggering them. And what's the visual? It's Danny's own fire, her own choice absolutely dwarfing the representation of her father's terror and madness. Is that really a fair legacy, given what she did and given what he did for so long? Probably not. And the ghost of the past is a huge part of the story, always has been. Shared history has always shaped a ton of it. Danny's family name is the source of her claim, the source of much of her power, but it's also the source of fire and blood. And so, so much of her arc has stemmed not from her trying to connect to that in every way, but in some ways separating herself from that, separating herself from figures like her father and Viserys once she really understood who they were. Understanding how she swings back requires time and care. There's also the question of destiny, which we discussed above, and agency. Think of Bran's quote to Theon. Everything you did brought you where you are now, home. That's true for Danny as well. All her choices matter, but her entire life and legacy will now hinge on this one choice that occurred in a way that, again, 
didn't feel true to even the most damning parts of her history. In the books, Danny often dreams of the house with the red door from her childhood in Bravos, the one place she felt safe. This longing tells us so much about Danny's desire to find peace and belonging, fear of losing that, of losing what she's fought to gain after sacrificing so much already, is poignant. And seeing that fear turn into a weapon could be too. Our issue isn't with the ultimate outcome of Danny as Queen of the Ashes. Again, we agree that this has been set up and mm-hmm. it certainly seems to be where her character is going in the books as well. But with the specific manner in which she became that and the really abrupt manner in which she was brought to that place. Mm-hmm. When John recoils from her kiss, she says, all right, then let it be fear. And choosing fear, choosing violence, that's a Cersei thing, mm-hmm. not a Danny thing. Danny blaming Sansa for Varys' death is really disturbing because, again, it shows this detachment from the reality of the situation. Danny killed Varys directly, made a choice, and did it. Putting that on Sansa for an X degrees of separation ripple effect is a scary thing. More moments like that. Couple that with the long history of foreshadowing that we outlined. You can sell this. You can convince people that even if it's not what they wanted, that it makes sense. It tracks. And many people would have felt betrayed regardless. Sometimes your heroes let you down. Sometimes we let ourselves down. That's tragic, but that's also part of life. For Danny, some of this has felt inevitable, the prophesized wing shadow. Yes the promise of so many of her own proclamations, pairing that with this unrelenting portrait of violence that deftly reinforces the story's anti-war message would have been immensely powerful. Sapochnik framed it as the Battle of Winterfell was good versus evil, then this is what have we become. That's an interesting question. Yeah, agreed. Give us time to process it. All we want is for more access to how Danny became this in a different moment for when she actually did. Don't give us Anakin slaying the younglings. Danny deserves more than that. Give us a fully realized portrait, not only of the chasm between the idealized version of savior and the realities of war, but give us access to Danny having to hold herself accountable for failing to break the wheel. Give us young Griff so that Danny has to throw back another challenger before accounting for John. Give us a fall that spans as wide as Drogon's wings. And now another quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Sonos. The experts at Sonos meticulously design every speaker from the inside out, combining best-in-class woofers and tweeters with proprietary software. They work with renowned producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience and brilliant room-filling sound. Sonos TruePlay puts the speaker tuning capability of the recording pros in the palm of your hands, optimizing the speaker's sound for the unique acoustics of your room. Sonos Home Theater also includes speech enhancement mode to clarify the sound of the human voice. Perfect for when characters whisper or the action intensifies. Simply turn it on in the Sonos app and never miss a minute of the story. Sonos works with all your streaming services and is easy to control with the Sonos app, your TV remote, AirPlay 2, your voice, and Amazon Alexa, or touch panel. Sonos speakers and components work seamlessly together making it easy to customize your sound system and expand when you're ready. Simply connect Sonos over Wi-Fi and enjoy listening in every room. My Sonos surround sound and subwoofer really brought out the screams of the innocents as Danny flew over King's Landing, incinerating thousands of men, women, and children as they fled for their lives. It's wonderful. You can hear the whoosh of the flame. You can hear the crumble of every brick. Go to Sonos.com to order your sound system today. That's S-O-N-O-S. 
Policygenius.com. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by Policy Genius. It's spring! Oh my God. Time of year when seeds grow into flowers and you grow financially. Your family needs protection. Something happens to you, and that means life insurance. Thankfully, Policy Genius makes it easy to get that financial security without the growing pains. Policy Genius is the easy way to buy life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. No commissions, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare and buy home insurance, auto insurance, and disability insurance, too. We know the Binge Mode's long podcast, and if you use Policy Genius, that's more time that you have to listen to Binge Mode instead of needing to spend that time shopping for life insurance. So next time you stop to smell the roses, pull out your phone and head to policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Spring is here. Kick it off by nipping life insurance in the bud. And now back to binge mode. Now, John. Johnny boy. Ari and Tyrion, of course, were not the only ones to witness Danny's horror raining down on the streets of King's Landing. John looked astonished at what he saw, setting up what we think has to be the climax of the series. John killing Danny and then renouncing his own claim to the throne. Don't forget the role of Jenny's song in this season, a yes. song about Jenny of Old Stones who married Prince Duncan, Prince of Dragonflies, a would-be Targaryen king who abdicated. Don't forget the allusion to the Night's Watch and Master Aemon, another Targaryen mm-hmm. who could have been king, but then passed it up and went north instead. Love is the death of duty, Aemon once told John. Sooner or later in every man's life, there comes a day when it is not easy, a day when he must choose. And what did he tell John of that choice? As with Danny, John's ultimate arc has been there all along. The choice is do I remove Danny and pursue my own crown? That now awaits. Will we get the final return to the quickening womb? Unlikely, man. Wow. But that would be a devastating complication. It's wild that that was so obviously set up. Yes. And we are just, it appears as if there's a possibility that we don't even talk about that again. Seems like it won't happen. Yeah. I think we feel pretty confident John will kill Danny next episode, abdicate, he will renounce his claim, head back north, just like Eamon. John was not only horrified by Danny, he saw his own troops become the embodiment of that idea that Jorah once shared. There's a beast in every man, and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. The moment when John sees the wildfire popping off is also really fascinating to think about, given the unlikely parallel it creates between John and Jamie. Jamie once slayed a king to stop fire from burning them all. Is John going to now do so to prevent more of the same? Jamie once mocked John for joining the Night's Watch, protecting the realm in that fashion. Now it really might be up to John to protect the realm from someone unleashing horror. Great Joanna Robinson piece on that very comparison if you want more of that. Let's shift to some Jamie Cersei talk. So Jamie and Cersei, yes, he really was going back to her. God damn it. It was not a Brienne fake-out in order to kill Cersei and keep Brienne safe. Fuck. This feels in much the same way that Danny's outcome feels the right outcome presented in the wrong way, so does Jamie's. It feels inevitable, the place where he would probably end up, and also very tough to swallow. What very, is the, very tough. What is the message here? Is it that we can't change after we watched him before our eyes change and become a different person, that we're bound to our nature? There's a really powerful way to get Jamie to this point. Again, as with mm-hmm. Danny, we're not objecting to the outcome, just really the method. Mm-hmm. Show us what Jamie grappled with. 
trying to live a different life and realizing he couldn't. Show us that he loved them both, but only felt he deserved Cersei. We got one line to this effect, which was masked by the cruelty he showed toward Brienne. We believe that he loved her and still kind of believe that. Yes. But how do we reconcile all these things at once? I have no idea. And then there's Jamie's wider redemption arc. How does a line like what he says to Tyrion in this episode, to be honest, I never really cared much for them, innocent or otherwise, in any way conform with the reality of his life, with the defining moment of his life when he killed the Mad King— to save all those people. It's like these things are, we're in the multiverse and these things are happening on different versions of the same planet. Jamie's arc was one of the most precious, not only in this story, but in any story to so many. We have talked so many times on this podcast about what an astonishing creation and achievement Jamie Lannister is. And we still cherish him, to be clear. He felt like this testament to our capacity for betterment and change. Did that all just go away? Well, no, we kind of can't allow ourselves to think about it that way. It's just almost too upsetting. Because Jamie did change. He did show goodness. He did go and fight for the living. He did love Brienne. He did find something real with her. But he also fucked her and then forgot her in the same episode. That will always be a thing that happened in the same episode the same, of Game very, of Thrones. Very same episode. That will never change. He laid awake one time and was like, I'm out. After hearing about the looming attack on King's Landing. No, I wish I could have done no this for you. I struggling wish I could have stayed there. There for was you. no struggling with it. There was no Let me explain. No appearance of second thoughts before that news came up north. It just kind of happened. Brienne once said, one of our favorite lines in the show, she said this to Pod, talking about Renly. Nothing's more hateful than failing to protect the one you love. Sell us on it with that. Yeah. Link Jamie's choice to leave Brienne for Cersei with an idea that Brienne holds sacred, that Jamie had to go protect Cersei, had to try, couldn't live without trying. Jamie, or again, tell us Jamie tried to live this different kind of life, went as far down another path as he possibly could, and then just realized that he didn't think he deserved that type of happiness, or that he didn't want it, or that he did, but couldn't let Cersei die. We didn't really get a full explanation in any one of those directions. And even then, he went north knowing, understanding as a rational person, what it meant. That if the living lost, they'd be dead. And that if they won, Danny would go fight Cersei, which would mean killing her. Nothing that happened after is a surprise. This moment, this inflection point of him saying, well, boy, I heard about what she did to the Iron Fleet of Masandi, so I guess she's in trouble now because Sansa made a snide remark about her execution, that's the first time I've considered that she might be in trouble. Like, no, that, that doesn't track. Much like Cersei bemoaning Jamie's bleeding mm-hmm. wounds. That is crazy. When stuff. they're reunited, when she had just you, sent an assassin after him. You're bleeding. Well, yeah, he would have been <laughs> bleeding if Bronn had killed him also. <laughs> stuff like that, again, with this compressed time frame, is just so, so tough. The ultimate outcome isn't what we wanted for Jamie. No. But what we think he deserves, or even what he really wants, we just needed more time to see it. Jamie once told Brienne we don't get to choose who we love. He didn't either. He loved Cersei always, clearly. They came into the world together. They always said they'd leave it together. He told Bronn he wanted to die in the arms of the woman he loved. We wanted that we to begin. Yeah. It was not. It's not about what we want. It's about what the characters act in a way that feels true to their nature and honors the time we've spent with them. Yes. So when Jamie says, nothing matters, only us— It at once ignores his growth 
and feels of a piece with his longstanding view towards Cersei. So it, much dissonance. It, it wasn't that long ago that he was pushing Bran out of window or killing Sir Alton or threatening to catapult Edmure's baby into a castle. <laughs> all for Cersei, as he told Brienne. It also wasn't that long ago that he was delivering one of the most moving and meaningful moments in the show by knighting Brienne. Yes! That was only a few weeks ago. Sell us on Jamie returning to Cersei and Anne. That's, yes, of course. But don't position Jamie as someone who didn't put that blade on Brienne's shoulder and charge her to be brave, who didn't take her to bed after battle, who didn't bear his soul to her in the bath in Harrenhal, who didn't give her a sword, which she named Oathkeeper because of how much she believed in him. In the books, he's currently on the road with Brienne after ignoring Cersei's pleas for help as she heads to trial. Will this same path unfold? Maybe. But here's betting we understand better why Jamie leaves, if he indeed does. His arc is one of the many that seem to actually have the clearest message for us. And now yes. it either doesn't or it does, but maybe in a less uplifting, hopeful way. Can we change? Is our nature fixed? Can love transform us? Can it make us better instead of just making us servants to our worst impulses? I don't want things growing on me, Jamie said when he entered Brienne's chambers. But he grew on all of us in a way that really defies comprehension. The world fell in love with a guy who pushed a kid out of a window. We can't say that enough times. Think about that. We just want more time with him here at the end as he made this final fateful choice. And what about Cersei? Yes. Well, you know, only one of the most complex and powerful magnetic characters in this show reduced to standing on a balcony sipping wine for the whole season. Didn't even have wine at the end. We wanted to see Cersei flex, and there's nothing wrong with Cersei or any female character showing emotion, but Cersei isn't one to stand and cry as her plan crumbles around her. She's the one who makes plans crumble, and often on her own. But that's the tragic irony of her character. That's why we were so sure Euron or the Golden Company would turn on her. Yes. Cersei overplaying her hand, trying to avoid her fate and thus succumbing to her foes, is what she does. That's her and, thing. And we got so little of that. Speaking of Euron, quick diverge to talk about our favorite eyeliner-loving pirate. This is the guy who took out Rhaegal. I'll never get over it. And then lost to the sun, to the brightness of the sun. <laughs> Astonishing. His death really sums up the shortcomings of this rendition of the character. It's an electrically weird and fun performance. Yes. And shouts to P. Lou's Instagram. Incredible Instagram. Back to Cersei. In season two, she told Sansa, the more people you love, the weaker you are. But in the end, Cersei's love for Jamie was her only redeeming quality, mm -hmm. despite what Tyrion would say about the love she, of the children. Wait, did you know that she loved her children, though? <laughs> it was just her and Jamie and their love in the end. And I'm that just was saying, it. she loved her children. Her love for her children led her to commit numerous atrocities, as Jamie so tells many Tyrion. Atrocities. <laughs> but it made her fight for something without. That love for Jamie, for her children, the love for her family. We saw when she was isolated how unmoored she really became. She basically had, for season eight, Euron, who was a pawn for her, Kyburn, mm -hmm. Kyburn, and the mountain before Jamie's return. As she watched her kingdom melt around her, juxtapose the balcony shots from this episode, watching the destruction, her failure, against the winds of winter shots of her looking out on her. Horrifying triumph, but triumph nonetheless. Kyburn provides some much-needed unintentional comedy in this episode by running through the laundry list of things that they thought would lead them to victory and ultimately proved 
utterly it's useless great. in the end. Bigger crossbows, the Iron Fleet, the Golden Company, the, the safety of the Red Keep. The bigger crossbows are all destroyed, Your Grace. Make the Iron Fleet even is even bigger a, ones. The Iron Fleet is a flame, Your Grace. <laughs> Unbelievable. So after Kyburn becomes just a smear on the stairs, Cersei runs to the map. This map plays quite a role in this episode where Jamie finds her. They meet in the same area where they last parted in the season seven finale. And their tears and their palpable love for each other is so infectious that even though we are Jamie Brienne shippers here, it was really hard not to get very wrapped up and very emotional watching this unfold, even if it wasn't what you wanted. They make their way to the dungeon to try to escape this Tyrion plan. But of course, everything's blocked and Cersei says, I don't want to die. Please, Jamie, don't let me die. The game revealed commentary about how she's, quote, just a girl here at the end who needs comfort of a man is <laughs> awful. Wild tone deaf. Brutal. This is bad. <sighs> and not at all how we saw it. <laughs> not at all. No. We read the scene as two broken people who've suffered through hell and often caused their own hell. Yes. Realizing they've just run out of moves. They've run out of escapes. Look at me, Jamie says. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Only us. It's an idea we've often heard from them. Mm-hmm. In book and show. Recall season one, until you and I are the only people left in the world. Season seven, I'm the only one you have left. Our children are gone. Our father is gone. It's just you and me now. Or in Game of Thrones, to Ned, Jamie and I are more than brother and sister. We are one person in two bodies. We shared a womb together. He came into this world holding my foot, our old maester said. Or Storm, I cannot die while Cersei lives. We will die together as we were born together. Feast for Crows. We'll leave this world together as we once came into it. And they hold each other as the castle caves in around them. And maybe you wanted a cooler death for Jamie and Cersei. I certainly did. <laughs> but the symbolism here feels right. They're, I liked it. They're in the bowels of the castle. The Red Keep's womb. Cersei's ambition is caving down on them. Tywin's legacy crumbling. By the way, one of the biggest losers of this episode is Tywin. Who, <laughs> yes! Who's now only living kin is Tyrion Lannister, who he hated. Uh-huh. And back to the death imagery. The heirs of Castle Rock are literally crushed under Cascading Rock. Yeah, I wanted more. I wanted at least— <laughs> I mean, you could have have them end there, but the fact that there's no conflict at all with Daenerys, it's like yeah. we eschewed— the Night King in order for this grand showdown and then we don't really get it. Mm -hmm. It's like Cersei's just like, oh shit, time to go. I like the symbolism of that moment but agree about the actual nature of the death. There's also the way they're posed in this moment of death which recalls the Doom of Valeria Mm -hmm. poem that Tyrion and Jorah once recited to each other. They held each other close and turned their backs upon the end. Danny has brought down her own doom on King's Landing. Much to the horror of the two men, her advisors, who shared those words in season five, the doom that brought down her homeland. She's now bringing down her own version of that. Interestingly also, Jamie has a prophetic dream in Storm of Swords about dying underground in a place that he does not recognize but is certain is not Casterly Rock. So mm. could that foreshadow this type of end, dying underground in some sort of dungeon in the Red Keep or elsewhere? He's with Brienne in that dream after Cersei has left him, so that's a crucial distinction, but still intriguing to consider. Prophecies, as this death reinforced, aren't always what we think, though the Valonqar portion of Maggie's prophecy never made it into the show. Book readers and show watchers who've learned the prophecy alike have long felt it certain that Jamie would kill Cersei. Instead, Danny, another younger sibling, did. Danny was also clearly Maggie's younger and more beautiful queen. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Marjorie. Mm-hmm. We did get a brief moment of Cersei and Jamie standing near the fingers on the neck of the map where yes. we thought that might happen. I got so excited. And technically, <laughs> I just think the show is not that. Remember when I said, like, back at episode three, Winterfell, I was like, 
they're not going to do stuff like that. It's not going to be anything cool or subtle with that's like a very deep nod to book lore and theory. This is a show in which uh, Gendry is like, yes, I'm a I'm a Rivers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're just yeah. not going to do it. I'll never get over but that was Gendry cool, not knowing his own name. And technically Jamie's hand is on her neck as they die, but he's not choking her. Will their death, given the Valencar presence of the books, be different? Or will Danny be the one there, too? One last time, we'll appreciate the irony of Cersei always thinking <laughs> yeah. it was Tyrion when he was the one who kept trying to appeal to her better nature and the baby and keep her alive on the show. Literally every third and word out of his mouth. All the time Cersei. is like, Cersei, you know, she loves her kids. In Do- the end, <laughs> despite how often he repeated it, Tyrion failed. And tragically, Brienne lost Jamie. And many of us lost our favorite ship and one of our favorite characters, or in some cases, two of our favorite characters. But Olena, as usual, got her victory in the end. You love her, she told Jamie right before her death in season seven. You really do love her. You poor fool, she'll be the end of you. And she was. Yep. Just as Tyrion said in season eight, episode two, she never fooled you. You always knew what she was, and you loved her anyway. And it turned out, whether we liked it or not, that Jamie did until the end. The Clegane Bowl at last. Yes. Certainly one of the most hyped fan theories that we've had and a great crossover theory. We always knew that we were getting this after the summit at the Dragon Pit when the Hound walked up to his brother and said, you know who's coming for you. That was a promise. Uh-huh. And we got it. Yes. And it was, I don't know, for me, like the most operatic and visually stunning uh-huh. portion of the episode. Yeah, it was hauntingly mesmerizing and almost beautiful in a sad and savage way. Stunningly choreographed, the smash cuts between what was happening with the Hound and what were happening with Arya. We're going to talk about Arya and the Hound separately in a few minutes, but that still really reinforced powerfully the simultaneously shared journey that they have had and their divergent paths in the end. And like the Hound himself, the seminal showdown had this injection of Much-needed comedy and relief amid the horror. Cersei's— It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. (gasps) I'm just going to scoot by tiptoe down the stairs after the mountain disobeys her, kills Kyburn, and she goes past the mountain, Kyburn's corpse, and the hound. Not an episode heavy on levity. We really needed— a moment like that. Do you think that that was just like a moment on that day of shooting where they were just like, okay, so wait, how does Cersei get past her? And they're just like, I don't know. She like, just does. Just have her just just tiptoe past. I don't know. And he doesn't attack her for whatever reason. <laughs> Cersei, walk like you see a goblet of wine down at the right. bottom of the stairs. Yeah. Act like your ex just walked into a party. <laughs> Incredible meme. Yeah. Speaking of Kyburn. Mm. I'm really sorry. For you. I, it was a great way for him to go, honestly. You lost a lot this week, though. You lost the prospect of the Knicks getting Zion, which is devastating. <sighs> it's a loss you're suffering, and I want to be here to support you. Why didn't you talk about it? And you yeah, also lost Kyburn, who Kyburn! I think it's fair to say is one of your truest muses of the last few years. It's honestly, the muse is really Pycelle. Pycelle. But Kyburn inspired <laughs> it. <laughs> Power drugs. Kyburn. Picel is the lens. You say that, but I've never seen you come alive quite the way you did when you contemplated whether Kyburn was trying to masturbate with the severed hand of the white. There was no question in my mind that's what he was doing. (laughs) I will say this about uh, my guy Kyburn. I laughed out loud 
And he got his head crushed. It's terrible. And it was also, you know, there's some symmetry there because, of course, the mountain was sent by Tywin Lannister into Magor's Holdfast to kill Elia Martell and Rhaegar Targaryen's children. And one of the ways he did it was smashing the children's heads against walls. Yep. And here he is again doing it with Kyburn. Speaking of symmetry, though, yeah. there's another form of symmetry, too, which is with the Night King, with the White Walkers, yes. ultimately coming back to destroy the children of the forest, their creators. This is a theme in not only this story, but across literature. You make a thing to be the source of your power, and then it is your undoing. R.I.P. to Kyburn. R.I.P. And you know what? Fan service isn't all bad. I, I maintain, I think we both agree with this, that when— a certain thing that the fan base wants mm-hmm. also aligns with the plot goals of the story. That's the key. Just go for it. Yep. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. I wouldn't even call this fan service more so as a thing that everybody expected to happen because it had been foreshadowed yep. and really wanted to happen and made a lot of sense. Yes. So we got it. Absolutely. And the spectacle of this particular sequence of Clegane Bowl, the grandeur of it, the horror of it, brought a lot of interesting callbacks to prior duels, prior fights, prior encounters that we've seen over not only with these characters, but over the course of the show. The Hound is continually stabbing the mountain. And as you noted earlier, the blade makes no impact, including when it goes through his brain. And shades there of John fighting the White in Lord Commander Mormont's chambers way back in season one. And that that moment when John and the viewer alike realize this thing isn't normal. This isn't going to go down the way that I would expect. Unlike the Whites who are part of the White Walkers Army, the Army of the Dead, the Mountain did seem ultimately to have some agency, and we had gotten this little hint of it, the prior scene, season six, when Jamie asks, you know, oh, does he understand what we're talking about? And the Mountain kind of, you know, jukes at (laughs) Jamie to get him to jump a little bit, and Kyburn says he understands well enough. And here we saw ultimately the payoff of that, which was that he was able to show some agency in defying Cersei's orders. Now, we don't know if that's because he actually had complete control of his faculties. Right, or some kind of primal instinctive urge to kill his brother. Exactly. Something base. Yeah, yeah. Some of the other combat callbacks. Arya telling the Hound, someday I'm going to put a sword through your eye and out the back of your skull. Instead, he does this to Gregor. Another dagger through the eye moment. Jamie with Jory. Oh, that was very, Brutal. very sad. Jory, man, I remember the thing that haunts me about that is Jory still breathing. <laughs> like, gun going like, Very like, tough. <laughs> The thing in his eye, the mountain grabbing the sword in his guts with his hands, just as the hound did when battling Brienne. And of course, the mountain uh, goes for that iconic eyeball squish Uh. against his brother, just as he did with devastating effect against Oberyn Martell, the Prince of Dorne. Scary moment. I was Uh, terrified. Shades of Osha, too, describing Bruni's attack when her lover came back as a white and she had to fight for her life against him. And what did she say about it? He hardly seemed to notice. But there's more at play here, obviously, than the violence. There's all of the horror and the heartache that stemmed from initial violence and that has spawned the subsequent violence boiling to the fore the way that it does here, reflected in the sky, roiling around them, the castle crumbling around them, just as their relationship, just as their trust crumbled so long ago when the mountain pressed his brother's face into the flames. And they are, of course, literally on a stairway at this point to nowhere as the castle is disintegrating. One of the stronger messages in an episode that often obscured what seemed to be longstanding morals and themes in the story, the hound's stance has been clear. Hate's as good a thing as any to keep a person going, he has said, better than most. The setting of this duel, 
like Sanders' ultimate message to Arya, reinforces that when hate is all there is, when it's the only thing you have in your life, you have nowhere to go. There's nowhere at the end of the stairs. The Mm -hmm. stairs don't lead you anywhere else but to that hate and the culmination of that hate. In this case, the flames. And speaking of those flames, could there have been a more fitting end for these two whose hatred of each other was really forged in fire? Yep. Recall that as young boys, the mountain at a young age already had a reputation, a fearful reputation for violence and was just freakishly large. Caught his brother playing with one of his toys, took his face, pressed it into the family fireplace, thus giving Sandor those horrific burns on his face and having him walk away with that fear of flames and fire that haunted him in every battle, seemingly, that we saw him. But the Hound also showed something else. Mm -hmm. Love can conquer fear. Even for the Hound, that was the one thing that could at times be stronger than his hate. He told Arya that the only thing he cared about was revenge that defined his life. But before they got to that moment on the map where he says that, When they're back at Winterfell, he said something that was equally true. He said, I fought for you, didn't Mm -hmm. I? And he did. And then he did it again when she was in peril during the long night. The only sight, the only thing that was able to pull him out of his flame-induced terror and into action was seeing Arya in jeopardy. That ended up being the stronger force. Arya is also the one to whom the Hound opens up in the show Mm -hmm. about his childhood horror. Quote, the worst thing was that it was my brother who did it and my father who protected him. Told everyone my bedding caught fire. You think you're on your own? And this is such a humanizing moment for a character who stunningly wound up being one of the most important on the show for allowing us to glimpse the humanity and pain below that scarred exterior and show us how, despite a life of violence, how someone's life can change when the ones who are supposed to protect them fail them instead. That's an idea we can apply to many of the characters, too. Yeah, so many really powerful and poignant messages from the Hound's character and his journey. The validity of fear, how real the forces that shape your life are, even if other people don't understand them. They're real to you and they're real. That's an important thing for people to see, especially in this Mm -hmm. package of gruff toughness where you wouldn't expect that kind of vulnerability and a force like that to have an impact. That That was an important message for people. Yes. The inverse, of course, is the mountain for whom the interior and the exterior are fully matched. Oh, man. And Great job on the— uh, on Oh, the, my God. The on the makeups and the prosthetics. Incredible. I think they said on the game revealed yeah. that it was— Eight hours or Seven and a half or eight hours. hours. Woo! My goodness. Yeah, he had to get there at midnight for an 8 a.m. shoot. It's just insane. It's not what you want. Can you sleep during that? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe that varies person to person, whether right. you are individually capable of sleeping while someone is putting a full body— <laughs> pus prosthetic on you. Nice. But for him, the exterior ultimately became yes. fully representative of what had always been there within, this foul, vile, diseased thing. When the hound knocks off the mountain's helmet, this is one of the, the better moments, even before all of the, as you said, operatically staged sword clashes and the ultimate tumble into the fire, knocks his helm off and he sees his face. What does he say? Yeah, that's you. That's what you've always been always been a monster. In the books, we do not have definitive proof that either is still alive at this point, but readers are, yeah. this is as sure as you can get oh, without yeah. it being confirmed, yes. are sure that the gravedigger and Sir Robert Strong are yes. the Hound and the Mountain, respectively. Yep. Will we get the same showdown on the printed page? Honestly, who knows with that? Who knows? Who knows about anything? Hope in so. that? 
But we got it here, and in an episode full of sudden turns, this felt earned and fully realized. Absolutely. The Hound may be gone, but Arya is still with us. Her run through the city, interestingly, was originally supposed to be a one-shot. We learned about this on The Game Revealed, but they decided to intersperse her journey with the Hounds, which, as we said, is really fitting given what this episode tells us about their shared history and hopefully contrasting futures. When the Hound and Arya met on the road after leaving Winterfell last episode, the Hound said, I don't plan on coming back. And Arya said, neither do I. And maybe that's still true for her, but after this episode, it seems like if it is, it won't be because she gave up her life in her Mm -hmm. pursuit of Cersei. It will be because she chose another way. They sneak through the northern camp with horrifying ease once again. I have a question for you. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to hear it. How is anyone alive? How is anyone in Westeros alive with guards like this? Unbelievable how unalert everyone is from the watch captains on the decks of any number of naval vessels throughout the series. I always I always think back, even though this ultimately was people on the same side, to Ed just oh letting Bran and Mira into Castle Black because Bran was like, you were at the Fist of the First Men. He's like, like, oh, sounds good. Yeah, come on in. Yeah, I, I tweeted everyone I knew about that. Like, anyone could have that information. I, I will say that one thing— there is a kind of aspect of it that I do appreciate, which is that, listen, in medieval warfare, which is this base on, mm-hmm. you know, the foot soldiers were just like farmers and stuff, levies, that like, lords would be like, okay, our high lord or king has called us to battle, therefore I must take X percent of the battle-aged males. You have to stop farming and being leathersmiths and whatever it is you're doing now, and you need to come with me right. and fight. And, you know, these people would not be trained soldiers. So, like, I guess there's a world in which this guy gets put on guard duty and he's like a tanner. Yeah. It's he like doesn't the, know the anything. dude who gets his soup from Davos. Right. And is like, I don't. Hey, I don't know, know. I don't belong here. Yeah, I don't know how to do stuff. Yeah. I don't know how to do war stuff. So, I guess there's a world in which <laughs> that makes sense. Still, horrifying lack of security <laughs> continues. They reach the map room in the Red Keep, the map that represents— really how much distance they and so many other characters have covered, both in terms of actual geography, land, and emotionally. And the Hound tells Arya, go home, girl. Fire will get her. One of the Dothraki. Or maybe that dragon will eat her. It doesn't matter. She's dead. You'll be dead too if you don't get out of here. And Arya's like, I'm going to kill her. She's been on the list since day one. You think you've wanted revenge a long time? I've been after it all my life. It's all I care about. And look at me. Look at me. You want to be like me? He puts his hand on her neck very tenderly. Yeah. You come with me, you die here. And so, really chastened by what he says, she walks away and calls him by his real name, a very touching moment again. Sandor, thank you. Some people might say, not unreasonably, well, why did it take until the moment that they were fully in the bowels of the capital to arrive at this? (laughs) (laughs) Another pacing and plotting contrivance. And that's, again, that's fair. But, At least in this case, the puzzling plotting delivered something really fulfilling and meaningful for characters we care about. Arya and the Hound, as we've talked about a lot, have unlocked so much for each other. And here, he's telling her that she doesn't have to live the kind of life that he has, one ruled by hate and dictated by vengeance. And their bond has been one of the unlikeliest in the series. And ahead of the Battle of Winterfell, Arya moved briefly away from it and what it represented— to pursue her humanity, to be with Gendry. But so many of those who fought in the battle 
fell back into their old ways right away, including, obviously, Jamie. This moment with Arya and the Hound, more than what came before the battle with the Night King, forces Arya to do what Sansa talked about with Tyrion in the crypts in episode three, look the truth in the face, the truth of what choosing violence and horror would mean for the rest of her life. There's also the parallel to the look-at-me exchange between the Hound and Sansa back in season two. And it's really interesting to consider how much the Hound has impacted the Stark girls' lives in general, like both sisters. He told Sansa, and really, I think one of the philosophically most important bits of dialogue in this tale, especially with what we are discussing in this episode. Yes. Yes. The everyone's a killer dialogue. Her father's her brothers, and one day her sons will be all killers. And he needed to be a killer at the end, but he also needed to save someone else from that fate. Remember season six, the broken man, Ray said, violence is a disease. You don't cure a disease by spreading it to more people, you cocksucker. Swanton! <laughs> <laughs> His response in the moment was disheartening. You don't cure it by dying either. But here, he proved he's had that come to brother Ray moment. Yes. He understands that it's too late for him, but maybe not too late for Arya. Yes. Arya's journey throughout the rest of the episode, of course, is consumed by violence, despite her not pursuing violence against Cersei, despite her letting go at last of the kill list that had been her nightly prayer since Yorin taught her how to make it so. She serves as our primary avatar on the ground for the battle, the lens through which we perceive so much of the horror that's unfolding. And she's served that role for us for so much of the story. Think about how she was the one in the crowd Mm -hmm. during Ned's beheading when we felt that thirst for blood among the crowd. She was among the prisoners at Harren Hall. She came across all the small folk touched by war in the Riverlands. Time and again, she's helped us see how this affects other people. And remember her face. Another time she was among the small folk, this time in Wintertown. Her glee when she saw Danny's Mm -hmm. dragons in the first episode of season eight. And compare that to her face here in this episode as she sees the slaughter unfolding around her here. Dragons are awe-inspiring wonders, but they also unleash terror. And so we got to ask, has Arya ridden away from hate, from vengeance, from violence as the Hound wanted? Or is she riding away from Cersei and toward Danny, essentially just changing the target of her vengeance and violence? In the game revealed, Macy says, she's seen a lot of things, but this is mass destruction and it's pretty sickening. What will the impact be? The episode ends with Arya miraculously alive despite numerous head injuries and near-death experiences and inhaling ash, certainly the ash from buildings and from people. Please give her a helmet and an inhaler immediately. She's got, like, mesothelioma for sure now. After taking the charred bodies of the mom and the daughter she couldn't save and seeing the burnt white horse toy in the child's hand, then she looks up and she sees the real thing, an actual white horse covered in blood, waiting to carry her away, which calls to mind Quaith. Remember Quaith? We do. Of course! Quaith's pale mare prophecy from Dance of Dragons, fifth book in the series. No, hear me, Daenerys Targaryen. The glass candles are burning. Oh, the glass candles. Wish we'd get in the glass candles. Where's we got those glass candles? (laughs) The glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare, and after her, the others. Kraken and Darkflame, Lion and Griffin. The sun's son and the mummer's dragon. Incredible. Young Grim. Trust none of them. Remember the undying. Beware the perfumed Seneschal! <laughs> the pale mare is the bloody flux, disease, destruction, and death. Is Arya a symbol for that? For Danny's reign right now? It's a great question. This 
imagery also calls to mind something else. The book of Revelations, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. Arya, of course, has played the role of Death throughout much of the series, serving the many-faced god, offering up names, acting as a water dancer and a faceless man to exact vengeance, rid the world of her foes, and eventually the army of the dead. So does this speak symbolically to her role in the story to this point? Certainly. Could it also speak to the next phase of her journey? Will she be the Gandalf figure on Shadowfax? Another iconic one. Love it, I love it! Bringing, once again, some type of dawn. Or will she be a horseman, the innocence of King's Landing? Her new Micah motivations for a new round of slaughter. It's crazy how quickly Arya has just moved on from Micah. It's actually wonderful. Like, it just shows you, like, how whatever happens here at the end. Yeah. The places that this show has been able to take characters, point A to point B to point C to point Z, mm-hmm. Arya is so strident in her hatred of the Hound for running down Micah, her first play friend, to now really valuing and respecting the Hound as a person is yeah. really amazing. That's the kind of thing that I think both of us and so many people are holding on to amid this yes. creep of nihilism and these questions about what the character arcs ultimately meant if some of them ended in the places they did. A message like that is that you can change and that you can grow and that the choices that you make do matter. And that's, I think, what we hopefully will be able to hold on most at the end. Jason? Yeah? It isn't safe here any longer. The Unsullied have breached the gates of the podcast studio. Magor's Holdfast would be a better place to wait out the storm. (laughs) But since that doesn't look very safe anymore either, please assemble the Conclave and head to the Citadel instead. To teach us everything we need to know, about the history of King's Landing. When Aegon Targaryen came ashore at the mouth of the Blackwater, near three hills and a small fishing village, the area had been under dispute by various petty kings for centuries. The ruins of many forts and towers crowned the top of the tallest hill, soon to be known as Aegon's High Hill. A rough log and dirt fort was thrown up, the Aegon Fort. It consisted in its earliest form of literally just a pile of dirt, guys, with a log fortification on top, all enclosed by a timber wall. The two other hills were named for Aegon's sister wives, Visenya's Hill and the Hill of Rhenus. Two years later, Westeros minus Dorne was under Aegon's control, and this unassuming rise of land on the banks of the Blackwater was fast on its way to becoming the largest city in Westeros. When Aegon named King's Landing his capital, the realm was surprised. People expected him to select Dragonstone the seat of Targaryen power for over a century and once the westernmost outpost of the Valerian Empire, where the king spent most of his time when he wasn't touring his realm, or perhaps Old Town, home of the Citadel. Mm. At the time, the biggest, and of course the oldest, city on the continent, the New York City of Westeros. But as Aegon saw, King's Landing had natural advantages. The location at the mouth of the wide river emptying into a bay on the narrow sea was made for trade. 25 years into Aegon's reign, King's Landing was already the third largest city in Westeros, a true boomtown. Security, though, was a concern. It was initially thought that potential enemies would not dare test the might of the Targaryen dragons. So the city, unlike virtually every other major population center in Westeros, had no defensive walls. A boon for the exponential growth the city was undergoing, but a dangerous vulnerability. So construction on walls began in 20 AC and was completed by 26. The walls were built as tall and thick and strong as those that safeguarded Old Town and Lannisport. Seven gates, a number picked for its importance to the faith of the seven, all guarded by towers and gatehouses, allowed access to the city. 
Let's talk about some of the notable ones here. Let's see, there is the Mudgate, which is closest to the river. That's where Tyrion Lannister led the defense of King's Landing during the Battle of the Blackwater. King's Gate leads out to the tournament grounds where Sansa witnessed poor Sir Hugh of the Vale get spiked in the throat by the mountain. Bad beat. Very, very tough. The Lion's Gate leads to the Golden Road, which Jamie used to bring the wealth of the Reach back into King's Landing. The Gate of the Gods empties out onto the King's Road, and in the books, Tywin Lannister's corpse is transported back to Casterly Rock via the Gate of the Gods. After the walls were finished, that left the matter of the royal house. The Targaryen seat of power was still the Aegon Fort. Though the timber stronghold had undergone numerous renovations and been expanded several times, we're talking about a log cabin, guys. It's clearly not fit for the one true king of Westeros, his family, and his descendants. So, in 35, Aegon ordered this giant log cabin dismantled to make way for a proper castle. The dude is living in a log cabin (laughs) for 35 years. The government was moved to Dragonstone and construction began. When Aegon died only two years later, his son Anus, Mm -hmm. Anus Mm -hmm. took over. Couple things about Anus, Targaryen. (laughs) Yeah. Number one, yes, that's how you pronounce it, Anus. (laughs) Another thing, he's the second Targaryen king, you get it? Number two. Anus. Mm-hmm. Number two. It's great. George R. R. Martin, folks. <laughs> what a genius. Anus took a special interest in the construction of the Red Keep. My descendants shall rule from here for a thousand years, he said before dying a mere five years into his reign from a combination of stress related to a number of insurrections in the realm and probably some poisoning, which was used to hasten his demise so that his brother, Magor, could take the throne. Upon Anus's death, Magor returned from exile in Pentos to claim the throne and usurp Anus's son, Aegon. Just incredible stuff. Just trying to say Anus as much as possible because that's his name, Anus Targaryen, the second king of Westeros, the deuce. Magor, like his father and brother, took a personal interest in the Red Keep's construction, but with the realm in turmoil, largely, but not only due to the belligerence of the faith militant and armed extremist wing of the Faith of the Seven, who viewed the Targaryen tradition of incestuous marriage as an affront to their religious beliefs and were willing to fight and die to change that, Magor decided to drastically alter the Red Keep's plans in order to ensure the safety of the royal family. New builders were brought in and secret passages were installed. A fortress within the castle known as Magor's Holdfast was constructed to house the royal apartments. The Holdfast is a square keep surrounded by a wide, dry moat with metal spikes and high walls 12 feet thick. A drawbridge spanning the moat is the only way in or out of the fortress, and at least one member of the King's Guard is always on guard there. Finally, once the Red Keep was completed, Magor, just a super fun guy, invited all the builders to a massive celebration feast. Yeah, great job, everybody! And there he had them killed, so that the secrets of the Red Keep would never be revealed. Tough look for my guy, Magor. It's very tough, although it is rumored that one escaped. That's a story for another day. Who knows? Now, as for Cersei's declaration that the Red Keep has never fallen. Mm. Not true. (laughs) Cersei, no student of history, of course, but she probably should have remembered that at the very end of Robert's Rebellion, her father, Tywin Lannister, infamously sacked King's Landing after peering at the gates and being like, I'm a friend. Let me in. Nope. Tywin's forces brutally destroyed the city and Tywin sent hand-picked men racing across town to secure the Red Keep, which they did. And then the mountain and armory lords scaled the walls of Magor's Holdfast, got inside, 
and murdered Elia Martel and the royal children. That is the story of King's Landing, the Red Keep, and Makers Hold Fast. Mm. Bells! Cheerful tale. Literally bells <laughs> for all of those structures. Awful. I'm just going to say that Magor's Holdfast should have been Anus's Holdfast. History would have been brighter. Put them in Anus's Holdfast <laughs> and raise the drawbridge. Tighten the security around Anus's Holdfast. I honestly don't know how George resisted it. I just love that he's the second king, so it's number two. It's like fucking George, man. Great stuff from George. <laughs> great Truly great stuff. stuff from His name George. is Anus. How do we get into Anus's Holdfast? I don't know, prune juice? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Kyburn has some of those plums sitting around still. That he gave to the little birds. Drink some prune juice and wait two hours, and then we'll be able to get into Anus's Holdfast. (laughs) Oh. Mal, Mm. look at me. You want to be like me? Yeah. You come with me, you die. Oh, oh, I see. But come with me anyway, because it's time to head to the Sept. Mm, confusing message. Bathe in the light of the Seven! By sharing seven of our favorite tidbits from this episode, Lightning Round Style. You go first! Number one! Let's talk about Dear Sweet Martha. Tough, tough stuff for Martha. Child, kitchen hand, would-be poisoner. If you thought she looked familiar but couldn't quite place her rest assured, you have in fact seen her before. She was one of the children huddled next to Varys in the crypts of Winterfell No Safer Place after the dead Starks began rising from their tombs. We can't say for sure whether Varys had already turned Martha into one of his little birds before the battle and that's why he was keeping her close amid the terror, or whether he turned her right there in the depths of hell or after. But we would not put it past Varys to turn the apocalypse to his brief advantage. I'm just glad he's, like, doing something, putting his skill set to some amount of work. (laughs) Number two, Cersei loved her children. Do you guys know that? That makes the air date of this episode particularly bitter. Cersei Lannister, whose two redeeming qualities were her love of her children and her cheekbones, as Tyrion once said, died on Mother's Day. It's one more thing she shared with Tywin. The Lannister Patriarch season four death aired on Father's Day, which is kind of fucked up. Very. Number three, upon hearing bells in battle, as we did in this episode, book readers surely couldn't help but think of the Battle of the Bells, fought at Stony Sept in the Riverlands during Robert's Rebellion. After Robert lost the Battle of Ashford to Randall Tarley, R.I.P. R.I.P. The one defeat. (laughs) That's right. Robert holed up in the town to recover from his wounds. The Mad King's then hand, John Connington, a.k.a. the guy who is later Young Griff's eventual champion in the books and gets grayscale in the books, ordered a search for Robert. But none of his people could find him. And Ned's troops arrived, at which point the Septons rang their bells to warn the villagers of the impending danger. Robert, who also manages to father a bastard during this time, named Bella, quite a multitasker. Bobby B, always keep him busy. Bobby B! Join the fray. And John Connington's forces were ultimately defeated. This was a pivotal point in the rebellion because it caused, among other things, Rhaegar to leave the Tower of Joy. But it is particularly notable in light of the context of this recent episode of Game of Thrones because after the defeat, John Connington goes into exile where he is haunted by his decision to act honorably during the battle, believing that if he had just 
burned down Stony Sept, he could have ended the war. He's also in love with Rhaegar, probably. Or so he believed. Who wasn't? Who wasn't? Everybody wanted a piece of that dragon ass. Number four. We've spent a lot of time talking about likely rulers, but there's another variable to consider heading into the finale. The Iron Bank. Yep. Who's paying them? The Bravo C institution backed Cersei, funding her acquisition of the Golden Company. But now, uh-huh. Euron and the fabled mercenaries are gone. How will the bank collect? I have a prediction. Let's hear it. We will never find out. <laughs> they will never go back to this plot point. <laughs> I think you might be right. So the Iron Bank will be kicking it with Dario yeah. and the Reeds and yeah. Yara. The traitorous Glovers, on and on the list goes. Number five. We didn't just lose Sandor and Gregor Clegane in this episode. We lost House Clegane, one more house now extinct after its last known members perished during one of the wars that has spanned the course of the show. Some other fates are less clear, though. What of Ilaria Sand and Septa Unella, two prisoners we know that Cersei had been keeping alive in the Red Keep? We assume, we have to assume, that the wreckage killed them along with Cersei and Jaime and so many others, but we don't know for sure. So is this one more thing that will remain an eternal mystery, or is there any chance that if the casually recently mentioned Prince of Dorne— The P.O.D., as I like to call him. —shows up in the final episode, he might ask after Ilaria, and we thus might get some closure? The P.O.D.! Where's my dude? The P.O.D. Number six. Despite Drogon's assault on the metalwork and masonry of King's Landing, bigger crossbows legacy will live on in the opening credits. This week's opening credits changed to include the addition of bigger crossbows atop the city gates. Weirdly, Dragonstone is not in the credit sequence, despite being a prominent setting in the episode. But Last Hearth is still getting that shine. And speaking of visual cues, Danny had on a new outfit, and fittingly, it was her most Targaryen and dragon garb-like yet, with reptilian scales and the black and red of her house. Number seven. Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers appeared Why? in this episode, though— Why? You know, keeping the streak alive, the Noah Syndergaard, <laughs> Ed Sheeran streak. <laughs> Very bizarrely, there is a ton of debate about where and when in the episode he actually appeared. Some seem to think that he is a Lannister archer atop the walls seen in profile. Others think that he is a lone runner who turns into an alleyway only to get roasted by Dragonfire. At the 1712 mark of the Game Revealed special, we get our most specific information. D.B. Weiss says, quote, there are a lot of people lurking in the background. See if you can find Aaron Rodgers. And then we get an interview with Rodgers who is wearing his costume. So that costume can then become an identifier for us. It's including an ash-sodden cap. And Aaron Rodgers explains, quote, I was helping a woman who was injured, sat her down, and then the hell with her, I'm getting out of there. Dragonfire. Apparently the only thing scarier than a Khalil Mack blitz. Ooh. Jason. Yeah. What I tell you now is true. Today's winner will rule wisely and well. At least we hope. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game, advance their cause in some tangible way. This week. Yes. The winner of our champion's purse is... George R.R. Martin! You did it, big boy! The discourse around the story has grown increasingly divisive and distressing and a little toxic, but the narrative around George is on the upswing. Boy, is it. Everyone again is like, man, this guy knew how to plot a story, did he not? Yeah. (laughs) What vision, what world building! And it has us all rooting, 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 rooting so hard 
for him to finish this story, the last installment of which came out eight years ago. <laughs> Our guy George this week had to write a blog post oh, on his blog, which is called Not a Blog, in which he dispelled rumors that were circulating that he had already finished both Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring, the sixth and seventh books, and had just been sitting on them as part of a handshake agreement. The fact that that rumor was out there is just dispelled or not, more proof that George is a winner because there's all this excitement yeah, around the books, all of it. this belief and energy around George, people fully opting in again to saying, give us the pages. Give it to us! We believe in you, George. We're rooting for you, George. Give us the pages. Well, it's time to say goodbye, old friends. If it weren't for Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, we never would have survived this podcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did today. That you're as excited as we are to continue this journey for a little longer. And that you'll join us again next week to discuss the series finale of Game of Thrones. Can't believe it. Until then, remember, nothing else matters. Only binge mode. Ah, yes. And when the Red Keep is finished, I shall name all the parts of it so that my name shall live forever. Yes, my liege. Uh, what shall you name things? The dungeons, for instance. I will call them Anus's Hole. Ah, Anus's Hole. Okay. Yes. And the Great Hall, where I receive visitors, shall be called. Anus's entry. Anus's entry. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, but that's fine. Yes. And then the kitchens, the mighty kitchens where the scullery staff will toil to create the great feasts that will feed the lords and ladies of this realm and the royal family shall be called, yes, your grace, the red kitchens. Oh, okay. That's not bad. Yes. And all who dine from it shall rejoice at being able to eat anuses' gifts.